Hello, fellows. We uh, want to report on the meeting we had yesterday with the executive and study committees. As you know from the wire from Bob Sweezy, we had a good long meeting, went into great detail on our new projected weekend radio service. We're calling it Monitor, and our projected starting date is June 12th. We had a meeting in sales plan and compensation and our general reasoning and philosophy. Very enthusiastic, and I, I think uh, unanimous, actually, in the way they felt that this was something that was highly commendable, and I hope most of them thought that it would really work. We certainly do. Now, in this closed circuit, we can give only really the highlights of the service. Friday, April 1st, 1955, Radio City, New York. We're at NBC Studios listening in on a closed circuit press conference for the network's radio affiliates. The man you're hearing is NBC's president, Pat Weaver. We're getting up all the information and presentation on this project. And I have with me here Jim Fleming, who's the executive producer of Monitor, and you'll remember from... He's introducing a radically different programming service set to take over NBC's weekend format. He knows this kind of a show better than anybody in the country. It will be a true magazine of the air, with news, sports, comedy, variety, music, celebrity interviews, and other short segments. And then I will come back with some more info The show will eventually be called Monitor. After you've gotten a feel of what... Monitor will be like. So, Jim, take it over. Thank you, Pat. I'll try to bring a picture of what's happened so far on this very exciting new assignment. Monitor. Monitor, the new NBC radio service. Not a program, a continuous service running from 8 a.m. Saturday Eastern Time until midnight Sunday, perhaps beyond. And as you'll hear, it's an entirely new sound and concept. Variety, comedy, entertainment, news, sports, special events... Monitor sweeps the shortwave spectrum. Monitor brings the drama of Broadway and Hollywood. And it does these things with a format that's a complete departure, complete from programming of the past. A few moments ago, I walked by what used to be the NBC Master Control Room on the fifth floor of the RCA building, and believe me, some changes are being made. Workmen are beginning the construction of Monitor's home base, NBC Radio Central, a communications center that will really be in touch with the world. I have the sketches here before me. An immense communicator's desk in the center. At the broadcaster's command, a battery of switches placing him instantly in touch with all the domestic and overseas pickup points. Newsroom on one side, tape room on the other, auxiliary studios. It's going to be quite a place. Monitor is going to be a new sound, an important service for all who listen. And even now, as our preparations go forward, we can pause for a preview. The Naval Observatory signals the hour, and this is Monitor, the new NBC radio service. Dave Garraway here. Let's check off some seconds. Ten seconds past the hour. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. The entire radio network is waiting with anticipation, and Pat Weaver knows that Monitor is a huge gamble. It will completely break radio's traditional structure. If it's a success... NBC Radio will usher in a new era in the age of TV. If it's a failure, it may just go out of business. Just how do we get to this point? Tonight, we'll find out. Page 5, through the sound barrier over Boston. This is Monitor, listening and reporting to the nation.
Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 116. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls is June of 1955, and network radio is in uncharted territory. TV's encroachment has the entire industry looking for new ideas. We'll focus on the launch of one of the most successful, Monitor, which will air in some form or fashion until January of 1975. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Spike Jones's version of Shangri-La, a fitting score about a fictional place first described in James Hilton's book, Lost Horizon. It was also the theme for NBC's Radio Playhouse. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. When the big advertiser could reach the American market in a few weeks and get his message over more effectively always than in print, which now the fellows have forgotten, but this was our argument that we used all those years, he just had to be in the business. I mean, I won't argue this with you. You all know it. But the question is, what do we do now? We aren't going to have 20 ratings anymore. You can't build a radio show that's going to pull a 25 rating away from uh, television attractions. It's just not going to happen. Network Radio opened 1955 in uncharted territory. In 1954, ABC, CBS, Mutual, and NBC continued a six-year trend of reducing ad sale charges. It was an attempt to offset TV's broadening market share. It didn't work. For the first time in 16 years, revenue had fallen. The only category to see an increase in sales was local advertising. And even that rose just 0.4%. In 1948, radio's highest rated show was heard in 11.2 million homes, in 1950 in 8 million, in 1952 in 5.8 million, and in 1954 in roughly 3.7 million. That year, NBC's highest rated show was The Big Story, with a rating of 6.3. The Big Story. Where are we? Just outside of town. I want to go home. Let's go home. What are you stopping for? I'm going to let you out for good. You're not going any further. What are you doing? 
putting an end to your two time until you cheat. The big story. There was no denying, television was here to stay. In early 1954, 58% of U.S. homes had TV sets. What made matters more complicated was the fact that ABC, CBS, and NBC owned their own TV networks as well. The parent companies were flush with cash, even if their radio divisions were faltering. The radio networks had to do something to stem the tide. But if we look at it the other way, if we say to ourselves, if television had come first, would there never have been a national radio service? This is something that I went into at great length a few years ago with you, but essentially the answer is of course there'd have been a sound service immediately and a strong one because people can't spend hours and hours and hours just staring at the television set. They must get away from it, get relief from it, yet they will be so intrigued by the opportunities of information and entertainment available through radio through the sound of television that they will insist on sound services. Back in late 1953, NBC's chairman, David Saroff, complained that the rating system did nothing to credit the vast mobile radio audience. Nearly 30 million cars were now equipped with radios. America hadn't stopped listening. they just changed their behavior. In 1955, 15 million radio sets were produced, the most since 1948. There were now 150 million radio sets in the U.S., or nearly one per person. Out-of-home listening now equaled TV viewing. During primetime hours, auto listeners added an additional 40% to at-home audiences. That means that the Big Story's 6.3 rating was actually closer to a 9. When Pat Weaver gave this press conference in April of 1955, rudimentary mobile audience measurement was finally underway. In one 15-minute period on a Sunday afternoon, Nielsen found more than 3 million people to be tuned in on car radios. Weaver felt NBC had to update its pattern of programming. Now the question, however, is what kind of a sound service can be built that will give long, productive usefulness to the American public? How can we sell that service to advertisers so that it will be productive and useful for them and they can now believe that they will use it in their projected budgets no matter how far ahead they look. Something I might say that a great many major consumer goods companies do not do, that is they are either out of radio or they are considering going out of radio. And they will go out of radio unless we find a form that re-delivers most of the American public to the advertisers. Without a plan, this would have been a sobering statement. But Pat Weaver was known to conquer long odds. He was born in Los Angeles on December 21, 1908 and graduated from Dartmouth in 1930. He went to work for Don Lee's regional West Coast Network and wound up as an advertising man at Young and Rubicum, where he produced Fred Allen's Town Hall Tonight. The two became longtime friends, with Weaver often defending Allen against the network. Fred was a rebel against authority. He objected to authority whenever it attempted to interfere with what he wanted to do. Fred actually was not a comedian who used blue material, but the censors were terribly cautious, shall we say, and uh, would frequently read into the line something that was not there. 
the newsreel commentary and the newsreel little vignettes that Fred did were probably the most uh, incisive commentary on the American scene that anyone ever did do in the mass arts. Weaver became advertising manager for the American Tobacco Company before going to work at NBC as head of TV programming in 1949. He soon became president of the network, second only to David Sarnoff. He helped create The Today Show in 1952, The Tonight Show in 1954, Home with Arlene Francis, and Wide Wide World with Dave Garraway. I was living at the Ambassador East Hotel. Very seldom ever went in the pump room, but one Monday morning, mind you, when the place was closed, I went in just to write myself a couple notes on a piece of paper, and there was a table there. And there was a weekly variety on the table, and on it, it said, Pat Weaver's Today. And I said, what's that? And I read about it, and I read some more, and I read some more, and I said, that's my show. That is my show, that's built for me, because all my life I've spent gathering things about everything. If anything, I'm a generalist, I'm a universalist, uh, I don't specialize in anything. I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I called my agent, Vicky Levin, and said, Vicky, got a variety? Yeah. See about the Today Show? Yeah. I thought about you. You want to try? Yeah. The next night, a fellow dropped in, and we talked for a couple hours. His name was Mort Werner. He was the assistant to Pat Weaver, who was the head of the network. I was called to New York to do an audition as a newsman, and they liked that. And one day later, I had a contract. <laughs> and you revolutionized morning television. Well, there wasn't any morning television. Well, that's, yeah. well all right. yeah, you're right. <laughs> you brought us morning television. That started, well, I'm afraid to quote a date that I oh, dug up. Oh, 1952, January right? 12th, I can tell you there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have some dates I do have, right? In many ways, Weaver was akin to William Paley at CBS. At NBC, Weaver insisted that the networks produce their own programs, sell time to advertisers, and take control from the ad agencies. Because commercials could now be sold to more than one sponsor for each program, it removed the power a single advertiser had over a show. Weaver called these commercials spots. His success led David Sarnoff to put him in charge of the radio network. Sarnoff was skeptical that radio would be able to compete with TV. I think now you, you get a feeling of what it is that we will start and run from 8 a.m. Saturday morning until midnight Sunday night a flow of information and service that will be quite unusual. One of the things that we, who are advertising men essentially, worry about in the falling away of radio business and the reuse of radio by the national advertisers was the analysis of why, when it was the great medium, we did do such a great job in terms of revenue as well as others. The fact simply was that radio was an indispensable marketing tool for a consumer goods product the cumulative audience was really the reason why you had to use radio. It was not your per-program ratings, but even those, when in the big shows were getting 20s and 25s, we would reach 75, 80% of the homes regularly with that one attraction. Now, you just have to use advertising when it has that kind of power. 
But today, as we have had several years of television competition, you no longer get either the individual program ratings or these great cumulative ratings, and it makes it possible for the major advertisers to look upon radio as they look upon an element of their print schedule and say, well, it is a good value. There's no question about it being a good value, but our plans are to do something else. This is a most important and little-known point in why radio has gotten into such trouble in terms of its national network revenue. By then, NBC Radio had created Weekend, a two-hour Sunday newspaper of the air featuring personalities like Jinx Falkenberg, Mel Allen, and Leon Pearson and Roadshow, a four-hour Saturday block designed specifically for people tuning in from their cars. There was also a local WRCA program called Pulse, which aired on Sunday mornings and showcased the week's past and upcoming events in vignette form. Many of these tenants would make their way into Monitor. Weaver believed deeply in the vignette. Good evening, friends. My name's Ben Grauer, and I'm very happy to welcome you again into an behind-the-scenes tour in eyewitness television. Tonight I'd like to tell you just how the television system which you're viewing today came into being. For instance, eyewitness, you have eyewitness reports. Well, the form, you do a show called eyewitness, or the original radio show, I Was There, the form suddenly changes the whole basic idea. The basic idea, the best idea, is to get the eyewitness, give a little description, and have him tell what he saw but you force the material to fit the form, and this is wrong. Where are they now is the same thing. This is no good, really, for a program, but it's great if you just get, you know, where is somebody now? There are a lot of people that aren't around now that, uh, that we all know and have heard about, and you can do great little vignettes, human interest vignettes, on where are they now, what are they doing, and have them say a few words. The whole range of human interest, Vox Pop, you just keep going, uh, Ripley, the attractions that you see around the kinds of information, uh, unlimited, and they all fit a form. Once you don't say it has to be a half hour show, it has to be a quarter hour show, once you just say whatever it is, it should be done, tailored to be the best performance of that material. Weaver knew that people had to be caught wherever they were listening, at the beach, in their cars, their backyards on vacation. And he wanted a show that people could tune into at any time during the hour, without fearing that they missed something. In February, Variety reported that NBC was considering tossing away their entire weekend format and installing a new 48-hour service. The only question was, would it be too late?
Company takes pleasure in presenting a special program. Welcome to the studios of WNBT in Radio City. Tonight we're celebrating a very special occasion, our 10th anniversary of public service. Yes, 10 years ago today, we sent you our first television... With Monitor announced, a huge facility was being built on the fifth floor of 30 Rockefeller Plaza. It would be called Radio Central. NBC's next steps were to identify key personalities to be featured. Jim Fleming was named executive producer. A typical monitor hour will begin with the news and sports as we've just described. The team of broadcasters, a newsman, and an entertainment man will be stars in their fields. They'll work in four-hour shifts and they're going to be busy. Let's move along around the clock on this typical monitor hour. Say now we're at 10 minutes after the hour and we move to the swiftly changing variety pattern of monitor following the fixed features of news and sports, literally turning the electronic pages of a great magazine. A constantly changing pattern, a constant forward index. In a memo, he detailed why the name Monitor was chosen. During the war, newsmen monitored the short waves for information. Now they'd be monitoring the entire country in NBC's network. The name suggested alertness, service, vigilance, and a sense of responsibility. These men and women wouldn't be announcers. They'd be communicators. One radio veteran in the fold was Ben Grower. Born in New York in 1908, he was a child actor who became an NBC staff announcer in 1930. All staff people had to wear tuxedo after 6 p.m. The dominant note was one of cautious formality with the listener. The doctrine was that you were a guest in the home. It was, a, you can understand it, if they came out of the uh, of a kind of a rigid doctrine of uh, decorum and courtesy and correctness, this was the thing to do, and this was even reflected in the, bro in the broadcaster's work. The earliest hosts or masters of ceremonies were very square. They had to be. The idea was that uh, you were the spokesman for this dignified, responsible, highly ethical uh, corporation. They weren't sure of themselves and in the new medium to take chances or to fool around or to loosen up. It was uh, ceremonial rather than creative. Grower covered Olympic Games, announced for Walter Winchell's Jurgens Journal, and was hand-selected by Arturo Toscanini to support NBC's Symphony Orchestra. By World War II, he was a senior commentator and reporter. I used to do a roundup, and we'd call in eight or ten capitals of the world. We were beginning to have a staff in each of the great cities, full-time, not stringers. Now, I got word just before I went on that we would go Paris first and then London. So I introduced Paris, and Paris was on. As I was sitting there, and my head was down, musing and listening to what was coming from Paris, while with the other ear I was listening to London, upcoming London, I heard a voice say, look up, Ben. And there was the director of the program in behind the glass booth with a piece of paper written on it, Spain, and signaled me, not London, Spain, Spain. When we finished the show, I suddenly said, oh, who said, look up, Ben? What was all that? He said, with 30 seconds to go, London coming, RCA said they now have the Madrid circuit, and I wanted to get it fast before we lose it. I rapped in the glass, and you didn't uh, respond. You couldn't hear me. I thought, maybe you're plugged into London. So I said, hey, Fred Bate, I think Ben is plugged into you. Tell him to look up. So Jack's voice went out to London, 3,000 miles, 
Bates said, hey, look up, Ben, came back to me 3,000 miles, and I looked up six feet into the director's eye. Communicators would be drawn from a wide pool of talent and paired. Some of the people suggested were Arlene Francis, Morgan Beatty, Hugh Downs, Red Barber, Goodman and Jane Ace, Fred Allen, Bob Trout, Faye Emerson, Bob and Ray, Frank Blair, Burgess Meredith, Boris Karloff, Bennett Cerf, and Dave Garraway. Well, I suppose that I have disseminated some knowledge. Uh, I can't help because I've been talking for 30 years now, I figured it out, and I must have said something in all that time of some wisdom, and a lot of people listen to television and radio, so I must have disseminated some wisdom as I go along with that. How much, I don't know. What quality, I don't know. And now, here's Arlene Francis. Whose very first show on NBC radio was What's My Name? But since you already know that answer, what is the name of the exciting new program concept that began NBC's fourth decade? Here's a clue. Right, monitor. Our motto was going places and doing things. And we called our hosts communicators. And no one could communicate better or more warmly than Dave Garraway. Uh, Isn't that a mad noise? That's Monitor's trademark, and we'll call your attention to the show most any time you hear it. In fact, they, they now have a thing called the Monitor Mambo. Mambo, if you like. And we're going to give you a sneak preview of it. It's just been recorded by Perry's Prado, the old Mambo King. It's so new that the record is still soft and quivering here. Garraway was a radio veteran and jazz hound who had an unusual homespun way of talking to his audience. He entered TV in 1949 with Garraway at large. As he mentioned earlier, he'd been hosting Today since January of 1952. Today I got up at 3.30 in the morning, Mm -hmm. and I can never truthfully say I enjoyed the first 10 minutes of it at all. (laughs) In 10 minutes, the cold water and the orange juice did the work, and then I really looked forward to an exciting day because the Today Show had five or six new guests. I would not sometimes know who they were. Sometimes I would know who they were. I'd read their books if it was an author. An author can always tell whether or not you've read his book, mm-hmm. by the way. In the first 10 seconds, he <laughs> <laughs> can tell whether you've read the book, the dust jacket, the book, or just thumb through it. Uh, it's funny to watch their expression. And if you've read the book, their gratitude is a visible thing. All kinds of people came on that show. Of course, we had 12,500 guests, we estimated, during the time I was there. Imagine, whoever had a better job in the world than to be allowed to sit in a chair, have brought to him 12,500 interesting, exciting people, many of them beautiful girls, all the beautiful (laughs) movie actresses and whatnot, put down there for five or ten minutes, talked to them and then taken away and another one put down or uh, a monkey in between. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't be a better job, could there? But Garraway initially wanted no part of Monitor. However, Pat Weaver asked him personally and Garraway trusted Weaver implicitly. He agreed. On Monday, May 2nd, the network produced a closed circuit practice hour. Monitor, fourth hour. Monitor, a continuing service in sound. A new dimension in radio. 
Monitor bringing you your story. Yours because you wrote it. Part of it, at least. Eighteen seconds past the hour. The hour. Not a long segment of time as a man's life is measured, but long enough to bring many changes since last we monitored the news. And now, from the Monitor newsroom, John Cameron Swayze. Here, in brief, are the top news stories of the hour. President Eisenhower told his news conference this morning that a top-level Big Four meeting might clarify the atmosphere in the world and also test Russia's sincerity. Meanwhile, at Warsaw, Soviet Premier Bulganin told a Russian satellite conference that the Soviet Union will give the West's invitation careful study. At Paris, the NATO Council wound up its meeting expressing a hope that hostilities cease in the Far East. And in the war on polio, the U.S. Public Health Service reports that the number of polio cases among persons vaccinated with the Salk vaccine now is 62. From the sports world, a few items. Two major league games are underway right now. But the big news of the day is the return of Ted Williams to the Boston Red Sox. A financial settlement with his recently divorced wife paved the way for the 36-year-old slugger's return to the Boston club on Friday. At Wrigley Field in Chicago, the Brooklyn Dodgers are trying to win their 12th straight victory, their 23rd victory in 25 games. And at the moment, the score is 0-0 in the top of the second inning. The Pittsburgh Pirates are playing the Braves at Milwaukee. The game is in the bottom of the first inning at the moment, and the score, Pittsburgh leads 2-0. All the games in the American League are just getting underway. It's Cleveland at New York, Chicago at Boston, Detroit at Washington, and Kansas City at Baltimore. Two night games, both in the National League. Giants at Cincinnati and the Phillies at St. Louis. Monitor reports the weather over the nation. Generally, the weather is fair and mild. In the northeast, a weak high-pressure area has moved in, bringing with it warm temperatures and mostly fair skies. And fair weather is in prospect for the next 36 hours. In the southeast, the high-pressure area has stalled for the moment against the warm air mass causing scattered showers in the Kentucky and Tennessee areas. In the west, a series of low-pressure systems are causing local clouds and showers. From coast to coast, temperatures are mild, with a maximum of 60 expected, except in the northern half of New England and the Great Lakes. Hanging over the head of every newscaster is, of course, the dread of one of those times when everything just... Well, listen to Bob and Ray. Now, about the material. We have been recording material with names who are well-known to you, going to our big stars, as where we will have them do a session with us in which they will record a lot of different information that is in good forms in these little brief inserts. For instance, you get a star like Fred Allen or Jimmy Durante, and you have them record different human interest stories about themselves, you know, their first long pants, their first engagement, the thing they'll never forget, the, uh, the, the biggest faux pas they ever made, whatever the subject matter might be, each an individual little hunk that you will pick up at the proper time when it's relevant to whatever the form of the show is on during the service or even just uh, because you want the pace. You want a one-line joke, so you punch up a joke and uh, he says... Uh, Drink a slow poison, that's all right, I'm in no hurry. Back to the man, you see, the communications man. Or it doesn't have to be just comedy, although there, again, we talked about getting a more variety of names, perhaps by getting the club comics, you know, fellows like even Henny Youngman, Jack Carter, those boys, and get them in and have them do something like the Joe Miller joke book on file. They tell joke, 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 joke. 
in their own style, but you just punch up a joke. Now this is something that these boys wouldn't do, except that we will, for them, uh, at a proper time, say that they're opening in the Latin Quarter, or that they're going on as a guest star on such and such a show. In other words, it'll be good for them to be on and do this, and do other things. We might have satires of all of our shows done by Bob and Ray, or done by uh, a cast of comedians in, again, little vignette forms. ...information on a story which developed only last night, a story which may affect each and every one of us. Come in, Leslie Leffingwell in London. This is Leslie Leffingwell in London, England. With the format all but set, it was time for a soft launch. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. As dawn rose on New York's skyline on June 12, 1955, the day's headlines were dominated by a potential General Motors strike, a President Eisenhower graduation address at Penn State, potential warfare in the Formosa Strait, and the Le Mans auto disaster. During the 1955 Le Mans race in France, 83 people were killed and nearly 200 injured. Two race cars collided, sending flaming debris and car parts into the stands. It was the most catastrophic crash in motorsport history, and it prompted Mercedes-Benz to retire from racing until 1987. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually in the tabernacle of the congregation, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. The Eternal Light.
12.30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC's WRCA in New York. The Eternal Light took to the air with a story entitled A Light Against the Dark. Then, in its 11th year, the Eternal Light dramatized stories from ancient Judea, along with contemporary works like the Diary of Anne Frank. It was produced by Milton Krentz in conjunction with the Jewish Theological Seminary. Many top New York radio actors appeared. NBC donated the airtime, and the seminary paid the show's production expenses. This is the story of a great light and a little light, both lights lit by man. When the great light flashed for the first time, the lives of those who lived were different forever after. The little light had no such sudden flare. It grew slowly and blinded none, and it would take many, many such lights to equal the glow of the great one. But it, too, changed lives. Although many radio programs were being canceled, the Eternal Light would air on radio and then television until 1989. But when war has been going on quite a while, people learn to carry on their lives in spite of it. Mothers prepare breakfast, send husbands off to work, get children ready for school. Years and years ago when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the color of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlors, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons, the English and the bears. Before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess... You are listening to the voice of Dylan Thomas reading A Child's Christmas in Wales, a page from this week's and our final edition of Anthology. At 1 p.m., Anthology signed on NBC with its last radio broadcast... Directed by John Malcolm Brennan, produced by Steve White, and announced by Harry Fleetwood, Anthology offered dramatic readings of famous and lesser-known plays. It featured men and women like Lynn Fontaine, Bing Crosby, Agnes Moorhead, Orson Welles, and in this final episode, Dylan Thomas, although he'd passed away in 1953. Written and read by the poet Dylan Thomas. This and other works of Mr. Thomas are available on Cadman Records. There is very little you can say at the end of a radio series. May we wish you a most pleasant summer and again express the hope that we'll be with you in the fall. There's an old Scotch doggerel which has long been a favorite of mine, a doggerel whispered by a mother, by a nurse to a child in the darkness of a bedroom, just when the candle is snuffed out. And the door is closed, leaving him alone in the vastness that is the night and a child's imagination. We would like to leave you with those four lines. From ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night, may the good Lord protect you. For the next three hours, NBC broadcast the Jane Pickens Show, The Catholic Hour, Citizens Union Searchlight, music from the NBC Orchestra in Chicago.
May we take this opportunity to thank you again for all your letters speaking in behalf of our poetry series and invite you to listen next week to Monitor, NBC's spectacular weekend-long radio program. Anthology comes to you transcribed in cooperation with the Poetry Center of the YM and YWHA, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue in New York. John Malcolm Brennan, director. The Poetry Center has asked us to invite you to submit the names of any poets or any poetic works which you would like to hear at the Poetry Center during the coming season. Just address your requests to the Poetry Center, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue in New York. And now, for our producer, Steve White, for Draper Lewis, who writes and directs Anthology, this is Fleetwood wishing you good luck and goodbye. There never would have been a kaleidoscopic phantasmagoria known as Monitor. Mr. Weaver, who was the president of NBC, conceived the idea for the program. And the term describing it, a kaleidoscopic phantasmagoria, was attributed to him. Pat Weaver, did you really call it that? As a matter of fact, I, it was one of my best jokes. I hadn't realized that it had su survived until this time. In the opening press conference, I believe it was the press conference, we went through all of the vignettes and the personalities and the philosophy of extension and personal magnetism, all the, all the different little pieces we were putting together in this mosaic. And finally, one of the chaps from the press got up in what I considered to be a somewhat surly way and, and said, look, can't you just tell us what this program is in two words? And I looked at him and I said, yes, it's a kaleidoscopic phantasmagoria which, of course, broke up the group. <laughs> a little levity in the midst of your problems with network radio in those days, huh? Say, what were the problems facing you then? With radio's trouble as attraction radio, as we used to call it, where the, the big shows like Fred Allen and Jack Benny and Bob Hope were sinking fast if they hadn't been sunk already by television. The way you got people back to listen was to give them something the television could not do even though it showed us the way in radio to do something that radio could easily do, but it never tried. And you were convinced you had to try. There were skeptics, of course, who thought a 40-hour program was just too much, that you'd gone too far in your attempt. There were more skeptics than there were listeners as we got underway, but the whole premise, again, of the continuous feed interconnecting people wherever they might be at whatever hour of the day it was with great personalities, ongoing events, true coverage of the whole world, the feeling from Radio Central that you were you were listening into the key control place in the world. This was part of how we sold the concept to everyone and that they quickly understood that it was always there and that it was always, if they didn't like one segment, it would be brief and something else would come up. And it had a very, very 
wide range of, of variety of appeals, but they were all basically coverage of people, of places, of things, ideas, entertainment events. Monitor. 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 2000 hours Greenwich Mean Time. This is Monitor, reporting the nation and the world. The combined radio and television networks of the National Broadcasting Company bring you the premier broadcast of Monitor. The new NBC radio service originating from NBC's Electronic Communication Center, Radio Central New York. Now, to introduce Monitor to America, here is the president of the National Broadcasting Company, Mr. Sylvester L. Weaver. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Monitor, our new NBC weekend radio service. This is a preview, which will be seen on television for the next hour, and it'll be heard on radio until midnight tonight, New York time. But beginning next week, Monitor will start each Saturday morning at 8 o'clock New York time and run until midnight on Sunday. It will bring you a continuous flow of items of high interest and information. Monitor is for all of you, wherever you are, in your cars, at home, at the beach with your portables, everywhere. And on Monitor, we are going to throw away the radio clock. We are going to bring you what we hope is the radio pattern of the future. News and information and entertainment in the vignette form, where the items are as long as they need to be, or as short. Well, over a weekend, there'll be a half a hundred people serving you from Radio Central here. And among them and here today for you to meet are Dave Garraway and Bob and Ray, Morgan Beatty, Walter Kiernan, Clifton Fadiman, Ben Grauer, and many, many others. Now, including in this group, we have our executive producer of Monitor, a man who has been a part of a number of uh, great pioneering ventures in NBC, Jim Fleming. Jim, I've talked about something about the show that we're going to have today. Perhaps you'd better tell us about the people and the places that we're going to be hearing in the next hour. Well, thank you, Pat. In a moment, we're going to turn our live cameras and microphones to the West Coast, to Hermosa Beach, California, where a Sunday afternoon jazz concert's underway. Then up the coast we go, and uh, we're going to a place where there is no freedom. That would be San Quentin Prison. San Quentin? San Quentin. Are we going inside? Uh, inside, well, yes, monitor goes places. So long as we don't have to stay. Well, now, what about sports today? Well, the most unusual sports commentator in the business is standing by at his favorite tavern. Uh, huh? And uh, news and opinion. Well, we'll have the late headlines, comments by columnist Roscoe Drummond from Washington. Istanbul's coming up on the circuit. Aha. Uh -huh. And travel? A plane is standing by at this moment to go nonstop to London from Idlewild Airport. A monitor transport uh, transmitter is aboard. Good enough. What about entertainment? Well, uh, Art Van Dam Quintet live from Chicago. Uh, Jerry Lewis filmed in the Catskills. Uh, live summer theater pickup, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. What about philosopher and thinkers? Well, uh, we have yourself, sir. Well, now, let's uh, <laughs> steady. Let's talk about what we've really got. Well, not to mention uh, President Pusey of Harvard and uh, Bill Saltonstall of Phillips Exeter. Oh, yes. Well, I think you've already gotten into vignettes and what's ahead. Let's talk about what's first. Well, the top news headlines of this hour, and here is Dave Garraway. And here are those headlines. From Bonn, West German Chancellor Adenauer is flying to Washington for talks with President Eisenhower. He is due there tomorrow. 
From Detroit, midnight strike deadline approaching as GM and officials of the United Auto Workers Union seek to settle their dispute. From Sumter, South Carolina, the Ku Klux Klan is out of hiding, holds its first open meeting in three years. And from Le Mans in France, the greatest auto tragedy in history, 85 dead in the crash of the sports car race at Le Mans, about 100 miles southwest of Paris. And Dave, those are uh, headlines. when this uh, crash occurred, uh, Monitor was there with BBC's uh, reporter, uh, Mr. Baxter, Raymond Baxter, and this is his broadcast a moment after that crash happened that killed so mm -hmm. many at Le Mans. Here it is. Disaster struck hard here at a point some 150 yards to the right of our stand, roughly halfway along the pit. And this is what happened, I think, because although I saw it while I was waiting to broadcast to London, I find it hard to remember exactly what happened. The Healy spun like a top, but Lance Macklin, I am happy to say, escaped with a very severe shaking. The Mercedes, however, struck the wall on the outside of the road, and as it burst into flames, the engine ploughed through the crowd, which at that point was 12 or 14 deep. I'm told killing 30 people and injuring 50. The disaster has cast a cloud over the race of 1955, which many, many hours of exciting racing will, I do not think, dispel. This is Raymond Baxter in Le Mans. Uh, that was Raymond Baxter of the BBC at Le Mans, a moment after the tragedy occurred this weekend. That was almost, I suppose, 20 hours ago. Uh, it's now just past 4 o'clock in New York City. Hello, Paris. Hello, Frank. Bergholzer. Hello, Jim Fleming. Uh, What's the latest toll in this tragedy at Le Mans? The latest toll, not completely accurate, but the best we can get from the reports gathered from various hospitals around Le Mans shows 84 persons dead, around 100 wounded, and of those 100, at least five so seriously wounded they may not survive. And yet the race continued to the very end, is that true? The race continued to the end without further serious mishap. There were a few other uh, smaller accidents and the Mercedes stable of cars, the Mercedes company, withdrew their cars because it was one of theirs that uh, caused the serious accident. Well, thank you, Frank Bergholzer. We'll be checking in again on Monitor. And that's it, Pat. Wherever the story is, Monitor's going to try to go there. That's a somber one indeed, but the most important story this weekend. There are livelier stories ahead. Uh, Bonn, Germany, Buenos Aires, uh, West Coast. We're on at the scene in Detroit where the negotiations are going underway. Monitor microphones are outside the conference room. That's how it's going. Well, Monitor certainly seems to be moving. <clears throat> you know, we call this area here the communication center. We built it especially for our new service. Radio Central is our, our name for it. And it's located on the fifth floor of the RCA building, 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York. And all the visitors who come to NBC can get a good look at Radio Central. Matter of fact, I'm, I think somebody must All right, be a few folks will just Bob step this way. We have something we think you'll be very interested in seeing. It's called Radio Central. What is it? Radio Central, sir. What do you mean? It's like what? New York Central? Uh, no, I think you're thinking of a radio. Oh, I see. This is the communications headquarters here. Did you say this is, uh, well, these are all communicators in there now? Uh, that's right. A monitor is a communicator. I see. And this is uh, a radio program? A radio program. That's right. All of this... Well, why are you uh, televising a radio program? Well, nobody's ever asked me that question, sir. I'll try to find the answer for you right after. But this the is Radio Central. Radio Central, right. Would you like to catch you? I would. Oh, no, I, I'm not allowed to. Uh, we're on duty. Thanks just the same. 
And now, we're going places again. Now that you know what Bob and Ray do on their weekends, Monitor travels now across 3,000 miles of the continent for two contrasts in American life this Sunday afternoon. First to Hermosa Beach, California, and then to San Quentin. Life at Hermosa Beach at this hour is a pretty gay affair, I can tell you. And so for the first of many Monitor musical remotes, here is the Pacific Ocean with Howard Rumsey and his Lighthouse All-Stars. As Monitor launched at 4 p.m. with a simultaneous radio and TV broadcast, the program staff had grown to almost 50 people, but still not enough to fill 40 consecutive hours of network broadcasting. Producers and assignment editors began reaching out to NBC affiliates for ideas and tape stories. Fleming and Weaver reminded their stations that Monitor could only be as good as the entire network made it. That Sunday, Nashua won the Belmont Stakes by nine lengths and the Yankees dropped both games of a doubleheader to the Cleveland Indians. Strategic Command starring James Stewart and June Allison, as well as The Seven-Year Itch starring Marilyn Monroe, were the top box office films. Meanwhile, Monitor's first musical remote went to Hermosa Beach in Los Angeles for a concert by double bassist Howard Rumsey and his Lighthouse All-Stars. Lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, California, welcomes Monitor. I'm Howard Rumsey, play bass with the all-stars you've been hearing, and we have a jazz concert like this every Sunday afternoon. In fact, every Sunday afternoon for the past seven years. We're 100 yards from the Pacific here in this busy little beach town just outside the Los Angeles city limits, 10 minutes from the big L.A. International Airport. Maybe you know some of the men in the band. Frank Rossellino, trombone. Bob... Bob Cooper, oboe and tenor. Bud Shank, flute and alto sax. Stan Levy, drums. And Claude Williamson at the piano. They all record for various labels individually and then together we record on the Lighthouse series for Contemporary. You can see the cover of our latest LP. Bud and Cooper changing from the woodwinds to the saxophones. The number you heard first was Happy Town. The next, Jazz Invention. Rumsey came across the Lighthouse Club on Pier Avenue in Hermosa Beach. He felt it would be an ideal place to play. He convinced owner John Levine to let him form a headlining jazz band for the club. By 1955, this edition of the All-Stars featured several of the best jazz musicians in the country. Monitor's Dave Garraway had been a jazz hound since his days working the overnight shift at NBC's affiliate in Chicago. One spring day, Charlie Andrews came out of the Wrigley Building with a lunch date with Peg Heaton, the girl he went with. 
It was a windy day, and the wind was coming up, and it was warm, and the fellows had rolled their shirt sleeves up, and the girls' dresses were blowing a little in the wind, and it was youthful time, and spring and lovely. And Peg noticed a blind man sitting against a telephone pole with a paper cup or tin cup, but doing no business because nobody was looking down. People were looking up at the blue sky and the white clouds mm -hmm. cutting the, the top. Um, and she said to Charlie, wait here just a minute with you. And Charlie sh said, sure. And she ran back to her office. She worked in an agency, an ad agency. And she made a little sign, not a big sign, about oh, six by nine, and a piece of string and put it around his neck. And he did much better. And the sign said, it is spring, and I am blind. And that's the kind of a story you would tell. Yeah. It's a nice story. And it is. It, it captures the imagination, and it, uh, I can see where it would be a, a beautiful lead-in to the next scene on Garraway at Large. Well, that no, that wouldn't, wouldn't be a lead-in. That would be a separate thing. Just that, a little I'd go on. between yeah. sets. Yeah. We, we used to have, I have a collection of stories like that. I don't know what you call them, but... Uh, the Garraway well, stories. Garraway stories. <laughs> Paintings in the Lighthouse by Rodney Evans Bacon. The Seal and the Pelican, courtesy of the Hermosa Beach Ocean Aquarium. Monitor moves on now from Hermosa Beach and the music of the Lighthouse All-Stars to a contrasting Sunday afternoon scene here on the coast. From the largest of California state prisons, here is the Monitor San Quentin Report. And here is Walter McGraw. I'm standing on a guard walk at San Quentin. Behind me is the gas chamber. To my right, the north block. We'll be going in there in a moment. Below me, in the big yard, are some 4,000 men. They represent around 13,000 years served and to be served. We'll talk to some of those men later. We'll also talk to the men who are responsible for handling these men. The first of these, Richard McGee. What exactly is your position, sir? I'm director of the State Department of Corrections. Which means? Which means that I'm uh, head of the State Department, which is responsible for the management of our eight state prisons. Isn't there quite a bit of difference in many ways between the California prison system and uh, those of other states? Yes, I think it would be fair to say that. How? Well, for one thing, we have an indeterminate sentence law in California. The courts send people to the jurisdiction of the director of corrections instead of to a particular institution. Well, that puts quite a bit more responsibility on the prison, doesn't it? Yes, it does, because uh, uh, we feel that we have a responsibility to rehabilitate these men while we have them uh, with us. You use the word rehabilitation. What's the difference between rehabilitation and uh, punishment? Well, in my view, uh, punishment is a negative approach to the problem. Rehabilitation is a positive approach. We feel that we have a responsibility for carrying on programs in these institutions which will uh, attempt to readjust these men and return them to society better than when we got them. All right, to find out a little more about that, we're going into the North Block here. There, Peg McGraw will be talking to Warden Harley Teets. Tell me, Warden Teets, how many men are there currently locking in North Block? There's 757 men quartered in this cell block. 757. How many men should there be? We have four, 
414 one-man cells in this building. Isn't that about twice as many men as you should have? That's right. Pretty tricky, isn't it? It is, and we believe it contributes to about 75% of our disciplinary problems. Ye God, 75%. I would like very much for the audience to see one of these cells because isn't it sort of against the uh, law for that many men to uh, be doubled up like this? It is not against the law, but it is against our standards, which provide for 400 cubic feet of space per man. We have here two, say, 376 for two men. If you can look in there, you'll see the two bunks right together. How do the men get out of bed? Can they get out of bed at the same time? One man must remain on the bunk while the other man's engaged. Well, this overcrowding and double locking contributed to riots throughout the country. Uh, how come nothing happened here? In spite of the negative things of overcrowding and some idleness, we have many activities around here. For example, 2,000 men enrolled in the various educational activities. We believe if you keep a man busy, not too much trouble with him. Well, they've sure been busy. The week that we've spent here, there have been men all over the place. Industries, education. We'll hear more about the men in a few seconds when we return to Walter McGraw, who is now on the wall. From time to time today, Monitor will be returning to San Quentin. When it does, we'll be talking to many of the men you see down below us there. We'll also go way over beyond that shed there into the mess hall. We'll be talking to the men then as they eat. Also, a radio first. We're going to eavesdrop on an inmate council meeting. The inmate council is a daring experiment in the prison world. We're going to have microphones in there, but the men won't know when they're going to be hot. There will be no officials in there. I won't even be in there. We will just listen to what happens naturally and ordinarily every week in the inmate council meeting. As I say, this is a radio first. We'll also be talking to men who have just come into San Quentin. We'll be talking to men who are about to go out. In just about one hour, we'll be talking to a man who has been condemned to the gas chamber in California. Until then, Monitor continues from Radio Control in New York. And we're back in New York City now. We'll be going back to San Quentin, as Walter McGraw told you, every hour between now and midnight Eastern Daylight Time. At 5 p.m., the TV simulcast ended, and for the next seven hours, Monitor almost completely owned NBC's radio airwaves. The question of covering television has been covered, and you will get more information on that. We certainly do not want to make the mistake that radio made for several years of standing aside from the mainstream of American life, television, and pretending it wasn't there. Uh, radio must face the facts and be adult about the whole thing and realize what it is, an electronic medium like television in the home with a tremendous number of assets that television hasn't got. And it's when you find your form within the realities of the two media complementing each other in the home and elsewhere that you build an enduring service. The only rule is, is it interesting? Is it absorbing? Is it amusing? Will people say, did you hear that and then go ahead? The minute they do that, we're in business. The minute, once again, people are going around saying, did you hear Milton Berle's joke? Did you hear the moving little vignette they had? Or whatever they say, the minute they do that, we're back in the, 
the big time, we've got the big audience back, and we're really rolling. Starring Eve Arden. During the course of the school year, Armis Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High, has constantly shown a rare genius for getting into the doghouse with her principal, Mr. Conklin. I've gotten into it with him so often, he's even thinking of building me one of my own. But about a month ago, I was given an unexpected opportunity to redeem myself for all my mishaps during the past year. Mr. Conklin asked his teachers and students to volunteer for certain school projects, and he permitted me to take over his favorite spring project, the school garden. I was rather surprised at first until Mr. Conklin explained that the garden is 200 yards behind our school, and he needs that much space between us for self-preservation. <laughs> Last Thursday morning, I decided to get up early and have a look at my handiwork before class. But as I went into our dinette for a quick cup of coffee, my landlady had a little surprise for me. Connie, instead of bacon and eggs this morning, I fixed you something rare and exotic. How does it look, dear? Indigestible. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Davis. That was unkind of me. You tell me what that stuff is, and I'll eat it. Oh, it's only some arrowroot, papaya, kukui, and poha. <laughs> Meanwhile, CBS and ABC spent the next three hours airing news, religious, and musical programming until 8 p.m., when Sunday evening's highest-rated show signed on the air. Then in its seventh year, Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, was still heard in more than three million homes and seen Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on CBS TV. Well, perhaps. Actually, you won't even need this stuff, Mrs. Davis. In another few days, I'm going to treat you to a batch of real fresh homegrown vegetables right out of the school garden that Walter Denton and I planted. Oh, that's right. Much of the show's staying power was Miss Brooks's every woman character. It was one of the few things that the guest opposite on Monitor's 8 p.m. interview couldn't claim. Even if Mr. Conklin has to plant me underneath to push them up. Well, little friend, I suppose you might call that a curious blend, the, the monitor sound and our old theme. This is Dave Garraway. Uh, this is, get it all in now, boys, Sunday with Garraway on monitor. Reporting to you, the nation and the world, and some people, too. And trying this whole new monitor thing on for size. At the moment, it's 41 and a half seconds past the hour here in the east, and that's what time it is. Thought you ought to know, or at least monitor thinks you ought to know, and I guess that's a good idea. I'm a communicator now, and for the next two hours, I'll be communicating with, among others, Marilyn Monroe. I wanted to get that in quick before I gave you the headlines. Here are the headlines of the moment from Detroit. 
Monitor reporters tell us there may be a break on the General Motors negotiations any minute, and we are standing by for that. In Buenos Aires, mounting tension, riots, and mobs, shouting, long live Peron, down with the Pope. Monitor goes to Buenos Aires for a first-hand report in a few moments. Out in the Far East, Britain's crown colony, Singapore, is in the grip of a threatened general strike of 70,000 workers. All army leaves have been canceled. And from Le Mans, France, a revised death list now down to 78. Those are the headlines. The on-the-spot details are coming up after I remind you that truck users really do go for Chevrolet's Task Force trucks. Task Force trucks by Chevrolet have the most modern V8 engine in the industry. Now, let's find out all the news, and for that, here's Ken Banghart. Well, as a matter of fact, there's a big story south of the border, Dave. Riot mounting bitterness tonight down there in Buenos Aires, and we had expected to have a report direct from Buenos Aires from Bob Lindley. Jim, you have something on that. Yes, uh, this is Font Monitor's uh, first brush with censorship. The word has just come in this minute on the circuit. I'll read it to you. We had expected to go to Buenos Aires. Our newsroom has just been told that your program is canceled, unquote. This was an Argentine voice. Our reporter, Bob Lindley, was not heard. We asked the reason, got a terse no-comment reply. Can you have the details of the press story? Yes, the story is that a mob of several hundred government supporters tonight routed with gunshot and stones, ranks of Catholic churchmen standing guard on the steps of the massive Metropolitan Cathedral in downtown Buenos Aires. The mob, shouting long live Peron, down with the Pope, roughed up a few of the faithful in the street, burned a car in front of the adjoining Episcopal Palace, and smashed windows in the palace with a hail of stones. Some of the church's supporters apparently were hit by that barrage of stones, but according to this report from AP now, no one was seen to be hurt by the several shots fired. About an hour after the beginning of that riot, city firemen sped to the scene and dispersed the government demonstrators with streams of water. This outbreak only heaped more fuel on the seven-months-old church-state controversy in which President Perón has accused some high churchmen of trying to undermine his regime. That the church has denied. As Jim Fleming told you, we had hoped to get down there direct with the report from Bob Lindley, but we were told by some voice other than Lindley's that our monitor report was canceled. Now, Dave, Joseph C. Harsh is standing by in Washington, and I think that you have some questions for him on the, the upcoming arrival of the West German Chancellor Adenauer tomorrow in the nation's capital. I do, Ken, that's right. Uh, Joe, as you know, Chancellor Adenauer will arrive about 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Do you think that Washington is going to try to persuade him to turn down that invitation from Moscow? A, a categorical answer on that, no. The answer is no. For better or worse, the State Department and the White House have now taken their stand on the proposition that Adenauer and his government can be trusted to negotiate directly with the Russians. It's been Washington policy for better than five years, you know, to build a new Germany that can be trusted to be loyal to the West. Any expression of doubt or mistrust now would be fatal to the whole project. It could just drive Germany into Russian arms. Everyone here assumes, as a matter of fact, that Adenauer will accept the Moscow invitation in some form or other. Perhaps he won't go to Moscow right away, but the inevitability of direct negotiations between Moscow and Bonn is accepted as one of the new realities of these times. Washington couldn't stop it if it wanted to. All it can do is to proceed on the working theory that the new Germany we helped to build will agree to nothing which would injure the Western world in these talks. Mm -hmm. Joe, do you think the State Department uh, can get uh, Mr. Adenauer to get the Russians to release East Germany? Uh, Dave, uh, that's a hope, but not an expectation. The, ra the, the Rather, the thinking here is that these German-Russian mm -hmm. talks which are coming up will most probably mean two Germanys for quite a while. The big difference from uh, the past to the present 
will probably be that the, uh, only that the Russians will treat West Germany as a major power instead of continuing openly to try to destroy it. They've recognized West Germany. That's what it amounts to. Well, thank you, Joe. That's Joseph C. Harsh in Washington talking about the upcoming arrival of Chancellor Adenauer. Time now is five minutes after the hour. How many people would you guess are having a birthday this week? About three million, if you're not up to guessing at this late hour. Conrad Adenauer would remain the chancellor of West Germany until 1963. While many U.S. citizens hope for an East and West German merger, that wouldn't happen until the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in 1989. German reunification became official on October 3, 1990. Other occasions like weddings and anniversaries and new babies and medium old babies and of course Father's Day coming up too. Gift money orders by wire are very easy to send from any Western Union office, any time and for any amount. Founded in 1851, Western Union would remain the U.S.'s leading sender of telegrams until discontinuing their service in 2006. Take care of the gift problem any time it comes up, and especially, may I add, while you're away on vacation. Send it! Western Union, Western Union! Western Union, Western Union! Today's sports, Jim Fleming. Monitors Sunday night scoreboard, National League first game. Cubs won over the Dodgers by a score of 9-5, second game in the eighth inning. Dodgers leading the Cubs 6-2. Giants defeated the Cardinals in the first game by a score of 8-3. Second game, all tied up in the ninth inning. Giants 5, Cardinals 5. First game, the Pirates 5, Milwaukee Braves 3. Second game, the Braves 6, the Pirates 5. In the first game, the Philadelphia Phils 12, the Reds of Cincinnati 8, the second game postponed because of rain. American League. Cleveland Indians defeated the Yankees in the first game by a score of 10 to 2. The Indians are leading in the second game over the Yankees. No, they've won it. Final score, Indians 7, Yankees 3. Cleveland takes a pair. Baltimore Orioles 7, Kansas City A's 2 in the first game. Second game, it's in the eighth inning. The A's are leading the Orioles 3 to nothing. Boston and Detroit postponed because of rain. First game, Chicago White Sox won, Washington Senators nothing. The White Sox won again in the nightcap, White Sox eight, Senators four. Washington, the U.S. won the team championship in the $150,000 International Golf Championship. Three golfers, Ed Fergal of St. Louis, Peter Thompson of Australia, and Flory Van Donk of Belgium tied for the individual leadership. Okay. Monitor weather over the nation. Showers and thunderstorms in the upper Ohio Valley and western portions of the middle Atlantic states. Foggy weather with drizzle or light rain over the north Atlantic states. Elsewhere in the country, mostly fair weather except for some isolated reports of thunderstorms over the far western mountains. And that's the weather look, Dave. And that's the world right now. Like I say, I'm uh, trying on monitor for size tonight, along with all of you out there in monitor land. The head man here says if it doesn't fit, they won't let you wear it. So I feel pretty good about it. If you've been attending our Friday night frolics this past year, this is the new time for same now, 8 to 10 p.m. Sundays, that's Eastern time. The show will be the sum and substance, really, of our usual Friday doings, like uh, Marilyn Monroe, who's dropping by in a few minutes. Things like that, you know, the kind of things we always do. <laughs> sure, sure we always do. I want to give you the full treatment tonight for Marilyn. I don't want you to think of us as... Uh, Oh, like the fellow who ran the lunch counter. You remember the fellow with the big pride in life that he could make any kind of sandwich in the world? You couldn't name the kind of sandwich that he couldn't make, I tell you. Except the wise guy came in one day, walked up to the counter and said, Buster, give me a whale sandwich. 
Real simple, just like that. A whale sandwich. Rye bread, a little Russian dressing, he said. And the lunchroom fella, he looked him right in the eye and he said, Friend, I am not going to get out the whale just for one sandwich. Well, tonight, we're getting out the whole whale from Maryland. That's not Art Van Dam from Chicago. He'll be along in a few minutes. This is a musical sound really as pure to America as jazz. He almost broke a wrist on that one run there. Monitor is bringing you at the moment the sound of the old steam piano, known more familiarly as the calliope, or even more familiarly as the calliope, or the calliope. This, today, is the 100th anniversary of that contraption, invented by Mr. Joshua Stoddard of Massachusetts, who got the idea from train whistles. And he demonstrated the first one on a 4th of July picnic, found the idea so successful that he promptly founded the American Steam Piano Company. Would you believe it? Within five years, old Josh started, hadn't exactly spread the idea that no home could be without one. His calliopes, though, did sell for $11,000, full head of steam included. And one more thing about this anniversary, about the inventor of the calliope, Joshua Stoddard. He also invented the fire escape. Just thought you ought to know. We'll uh, bank the fires in, in Radio Central here on our calliope while Monitor goes to Chicago and picks up the monitor and gorgeous music of the Art Van Dam Quintet. Van Damme was born in 1920 to Belgian parents. Age nine, while living in a small town in Michigan, he began to learn the accordion. By 1933, he was already touring the country when his family moved to Chicago. In 1939, he formed his first jazz trio, consisting of accordion, saxophone, and drums. Van Damme got hired by NBC, where he'd worked for the network for the next 15 years, while simultaneously forming a quintet. In 1955, he was recording for Columbia Records. Radio got ideas for programs good enough to sustain either quarter hour, half hour, or an hour. But there are many ideas and many things that won't sustain and do not fall into patterns with other things that make what we call radio programs, but doesn't mean they aren't good. Uh, for instance, if you read the Reader's Digest, you'll notice all the lubricating little things they have in there, the little, all the variety of different approaches and types, things about people, human interest stories, little dramatic vignettes, little jokes and funny sayings and anecdotes. All this kind of material, for instance, is not useful in present-day radio service, but it is useful when you get to monitor, as you could easily see from what you've already heard. You have a form now that merely says that from our communication center, Anything of interest to the people will bring to the people, and in a form that has a vignette feel to it. 
If you don't like what's announced and what is going to play, you know roughly what time it will take, and you can come back. There will be an easily memorable framework of attractions that you can join and go out of completely at your convenience. It is a service tailored for you that will be highly interesting and amusing and moving when you want it. And it will have other service elements too, of course, like the news and music, but this is available elsewhere. The key point, news is not available elsewhere in the form we're projecting it, and probably not music in many of the pickups and remotes, as you know. But essentially, we can once again have the whole American public no, any time in the weekend, they need not be alone, and they don't have to sit there looking at the television set. They can turn this service on, and in will come the flow. It will be like having a personal editor who would go out and listen to everything, read everything, know everything, and then be there at your little tame cap and bells jester uh, with the whole range of moods, telling you the very best of everything that's happening. Straighten your own tie and get your glasses clean. This is Garraway on Sunday on Monitor, going places and doing things. Take one. you'd like to uh, pull your chair up a little closer to the loudspeaker, I wouldn't blame you at all. If you'd like to get inside the set, I wouldn't blame you very much. There's going to be some very deep breathing going on here. Old friend Monitor and Garraway are host right now to the very likes of Miss Marilyn Monroe. I wonder if I'm scared of you. Are most men scared of you? I'm not sure whether I should be frightened of you or not. No, nobody's scared of me. I don't know. I, I bet a lot of guys are scared of you, though, because you're such a institution now. Really you are. You're a kind of a national possession. Do you feel that you belong to the nation as a whole? Oh, I don't know quite what you mean by that. I live here. <laughs> That'll do it very nicely. Uh, I heard you were smart, but I didn't know. Uh, I'm not. Yes, you don't are. let me fool no. you. I'm not. <laughs> uh, you know, you have a reputation as uh, among the great mass of people, I think. It's probably the most beautiful. Uh, blonde uh, in the world but a kind of a dumb girl because you're a beautiful blonde and blondes and dumbness seem to go together i think it all started with maybe with gentlemen prefer blondes you know it's interesting um that people associate um if you happen to have blonde hair you know naturally mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. not naturally however um or if you're not out of shape in some way mm -hmm. you're absolutely dumb i mean you're considered dumb I don't know why that is. It's very, I think it's a very limited view. It isn't true, too, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter what the person, mm -hmm. uh, what they look like, what color hair they have. Nonsense. Or if they uh, 
happen not to be out of shape. I mean, my time's to come. Gravity catches up with all of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Slowly, but I'm afraid inexorably, if that's the right word. Uh, I hear that you're moving to New York City to live. Is it so? Yes. Um, this will be my home from now on. Mm -hmm. That is until I retire. And when I retire, I'm going to retire to Brooklyn. Really? <laughs> Why Brooklyn? Oh, that's my favorite place in the world so far that I've seen. Sure. I haven't traveled much, but I don't think I'll find anything to replace Brooklyn. You're going to help our rating in Brooklyn about nine points. Why, uh, why, why is it Brooklyn? What, what happens there with you? Well, almost everything. Um, I just like walking around. Mm -hmm. I think the view's better from Brooklyn. You know, you can look back over and see Manhattan. Yeah, that's, that's the only the place you can see Manhattan from your That's the right? best view, but it isn't only the view. It's the people. It's, um, I like the streets. I guess the people and the streets and mm -hmm. the atmosphere. I just like it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about uh, the singing thing for a little bit. Uh, did you, uh, well, who are, who are your favorite people to hear sing modern music? Well, my very favorite person and um i love her as a person as well as a singer i think she's the greatest and that's ella fitzgerald ah, you, you fall right in the happy club who's your favorite man singer well frankly yes. i have to say frank yeah that's it <laughs> it's as easy as that <laughs> however he didn't used to be it's the way he sings now i know when oh, i was yeah. a kid in you know junior high school and high school and he was sort of uh, Bobby Sox mm -hmm. idol even though I was in Bobby Sox he wasn't my idol it isn't until recently I think his whole style and um, I don't know there's something that's changed he, he drastically big. he matured the somehow the, the sound that he makes now is such a big round well it's his sound. style to me it's his style when it comes to sound I like Sammy Davis too mm -hmm. but Frank's style you can't beat it Marilyn Monroe had just turned 29 at the time of this interview. After filming of the seven-year itch wrapped the previous November, she left for the East Coast, forming Marilyn Monroe Productions with photographer Milton Green. Although shot in Hollywood, the studio generated publicity by staging the filming of a scene that had Monroe standing on a subway grate with air blowing up her skirt. It became one of the most famous promos in Hollywood history. Marilyn was tired of being typecast and embroiled in a legal battle with 20th Century Fox. While studying under Lee Strasberg, her marriage to Joe DiMaggio failed. He greatly objected to her public sex symbol persona. By the time of this interview, she'd filed for divorce, claiming DiMaggio was jealous, controlling, and abusive. However, they remained lifelong friends, and she was soon seeing playwright Arthur Miller. Fox urged her to end the relationship. Miller was being investigated for communist ties by the House of Un-American Activities. She refused. Fox gave in, and at the end of the year, Monroe signed a new contract. It paid her $400,000 to make four films, and granted her the right to choose her own projects, directors, and cinematographers. She'd also be free to make one film of her own for each completed with Fox. Make the 
cold, tropical heat wave. The way that I move, that thermometer proves. She served the lady, served the lady, served the lady, yeah. I certainly Who are all those men I just heard you with? Is that a chorus of male voices? Yes. Mm-hmm. How long do you think you'll be at the top, I wonder? Um, at the top isn't so important. What I'd like to do, that is what I would like to accomplish. I would like to be a good actress. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a matter of being on top because... I think some of the best actors and actresses perhaps aren't on the top. So that's not the thing. I knew you were smart somehow. No, I I'm not. So many times. That's Don't awesome. let me fool you, I'm not. Well, you haven't learned to say that because you say it just at the right time. Uh, so I know that I'm sure of what I mean. I better stay here in case anybody has to find it. And this is Dave Carroll. Was there a point, a one moment when your career went where it is instead of someplace else? Did you go through a revolving door and uh, meet somebody in it or turn left when you might have turned right? No, not actually. I modeled and then... Um, I was under contract to Fox. They signed me. Mm-hmm. After one month, five magazine covers appeared, and they signed me. And then they dropped me after a year. I didn't have an opportunity to do anything, actually, during the year that I was there at 20th Century Fox the first time, mm-hmm. except one part in Scudder Who's Got a Hay, and I was cut out of it, so you can't exactly call that a chance to do anything. Oh, no. I bet so many people think that that must be an ideal year with nothing to do, just sit and take the studio's checks. And no, really no. it's torture, isn't it? It's very painful. Because at least, although I knew I, I didn't know anything about acting, but I wanted to know and I wanted to experience, but, well, that's how it is. Do you uh, keep a diary, by the way? No. Did you ever? Mm, well, not exactly a diary. Sometimes... When things used to happen, I used to write it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, I used to tear it up. <laughs> Do you miss your anonymity? Do you miss being able to go out and, and not be recognized and go places? Uh, so that, uh, as it used to be before you became famous, so no one would pay any attention to you except... I'll tell you. Um, I do in a way. However, I'm terribly grateful for everything that's happened because I remember when things weren't like this at all but you do miss sometimes just being able to be completely yourself and someplace and people just know you as another human being I don't think you could get away with the gag I use I have a kind of a disguise um, a mustache and some trick glasses and I part my hair in the middle oh I I use a wig sometimes does it work it has. Marilyn, if the house you have caught on fire, what material thing would you run for to save first? Some books. Which books? 
I'd rather not say it's very personal. Oh, it's it's more than one book. I knew you were smart all the time somehow. I'm just delighted to find it out for myself. Well, now, your success and has been the, or close to it, the dream of, of, a, of every American girl, all right, I guess. Uh, after you got what you want, did you want it? Well, I, as I say, uh, the thing I like the most is to become a real actress. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was a kid, sitting in the front row at the movies on Saturday afternoon, and I would never come out of the movie. They'd have to come and get me, you know, I'd sit in the front row. And I'd think how wonderful it would be to be an actress and so forth. But I didn't really realize about acting, except I appreciated what I saw. Bad, good, it didn't matter. I enjoyed it very much, everything that I would see. It's anything that would move on the screen. However, um, I, I think I realized more and more the responsibility and it is a responsibility, and mm -hmm. as I say, I would like to be a good actress. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew you were smart, like I said, <laughs> all the time. I just want to thank you, girl, for coming in and, and making me confirm my own opinion, which I had from other people, but not to know myself in person. Well, I'll scramble that sentence during the following month. <sighs> good night, Marilyn. Bye-bye. It's a pleasure meeting you. You too. And so it is. That wasn't so bad now, was it? I could have told you, Garway, there was nothing to be nervous about. She's just like any other girl in the world you should be so lucky to meet. Let the record show that uh, Marilyn Monroe made her debut on Monitor at, well, finishing at 27 minutes after 8 Eastern time. That's the time right now, Gruen watch time. And if you've been calculating, you know that there are now less than 9,000 minutes until Father's Day. Chances are you didn't figure that out, but that's all right. As long as you get Dad precisely what he wants and needs. Buy him a Gruen this year. Gruen is the precision watch. Coming up shortly on Monitor is our continuing report from San Quentin out in California. We're going to hear the voice, the great voice, maybe the greatest voice in the world, I'm not sure, of Carl Sandburg. Which voice, if you're not familiar with, you should please stick around the next half hour. And we're going to have a little Les Brown walking slowly through the pasture here. Please, sir. Now, if this program works the way we think, we will, in addition to the ratings and the automobile usage and the portable usage and so forth, we hope getting the listeners to your station, to our network, up as we go from period to period, through this whole period, we'll also get more and more of the people to tune in for part of the time. The cumulative audience will rise. I certainly will be very unhappy unless we are able to build this thing up to where we're getting a 50% cumulative on the weekend. This is not perhaps right away, but it is certainly what we intend to do. And why not? A third of the people are probably out driving, and right away you can get them because this will just be great driving stuff. Anybody who isn't listening to music for secondary listening, the minute you get the word to them, what we have, and they start using it, we expect a 50 cumulative. Well, that doesn't do you any good uh, if you're an advertiser unless you reach the 50. You only reach the people who are listening when your advertising is on. So what does that mean? It means to follow more with more uh, vigor the things we've already done, the pattern of placing ads at different times, and instead of spending your whole money at a time period that is your own time period in the old program sponsorship basis, you go to a 
pattern of positions which get overlapping audiences and adding them all together you will reach again the big audience. We do that now with our present form. This is Monitor, NBC's new radio service. But we will do much better with the new forms because on the weekend service on Monitor we are planning the flexibility of one minutes, 30 seconds and six second billboards, really poster ads on radio. This is the result of a lot of work and study on how to make the advertiser come back into radio almost on a forced basis. In other words, if the program gets a 50 cumulative and if an advertiser for consumer products can move in with a poster campaign or a series of 30 seconds or if he can afford it a series of minutes and really get for himself that 50 rating, he will have enough power in his selling effectiveness with his campaign so that he's in business with us. He is back in the medium to stay. It is no longer uh, a question of dropping radio as you could drop a magazine off your list because while a good value, it is not imperative that he use it. It will be imperative that he use it. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 54, it? 54, I feel. And then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did Monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered. The contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it. Well, that was... One of the great losses to radio, certainly. But you were with NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim? We were with NBC for over 30 years. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. We'll begin the story shortly, but right now, I don't want to interrupt Mr. McGee's daydreams. Soldier, sailor, tinker, tailor, doctor, lawyer... Indian chief. <laughs> Stop naming your buttons, McGee. Your destiny's already decided. I know, but that's an old kid day habit. Papa used to play it with me. 
Guessing what Johnny and Jane will grow up to be is still a favorite game with parents. At 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Fibber McGee and Molly signed on NBC. After 18 years as a weekly program, Fibber and Molly began airing as a five-day-per-week serial in October of 1953. Mothers and fathers to guarantee money for the children's education. The show found sponsorship in January of 1954, reaching two million homes. That was the third most among evening serials. You know... NBC charged just under $3,000 for a minute of sponsorship. It was touted as the lowest cost for network time in history. On the day Monitor began, Fibber struggled with a mechanical gopher. So call your Prudential agent first thing. He'll be delighted to give you details. Funny thing about manual labor. You give the average guy a spade and tell him there's buried treasure around here someplace and he'll dig up a square block without even getting winded. But give the same guy the same spade and tell him you want your flower beds dug up. Here's what he sounds like. Digging up flower beds is sure a lot of work, Molly. Oh, but it's certainly worth it, dearie, when you see all those little flowers poke their pretty heads up out of the ground and say hello. If any of them ask for me, you can tell them I'm in bed with a bad back, because that's where I'll be when this job is done. Oh, your mommy's big, strong boy. You can do anything. Say, hi there, neighbor. Oh, hello, Lester. Hi. The reason I came over is to bring you something, Miss McGee, a package of flower seeds. Oh. We sent a dime to our congressman, me and Sally. And he sent us two packs of these by mistake instead of one. They're fuchsias, see? Oh, fuchsia. I've always wanted to try them. You're welcome to them. Uh, you have to plant them in the shade, though. See see what it says there? Shade. Gee whiz, Molly. The only shady spot out here is alongside Alyssa's fence there, and that ground's harder than a flophouse bed over there. Oh, it's not too hard for you, I bet. Your mommy's big, strong... Give me the seeds. <laughs> Gee willikers. Here you are. Thanks, Lester. Very nice of you to do oh, this. Oh, that's all right, Miss McGee. I like to be neighborly. After all, what are neighbors for? A good question. If not to help each other out, I always say. You know, I, I think that's what's the matter with the world today. Neighbors ignoring each other's problems instead of working side by side. Uh, together. Well, sir, neighbor, I want to tell you that those are my sentiments exactly. They are? What you're actually saying, neighbor, is we ought to be neighborly. We ought to make every day a help your neighbor day. In fact, it'd be a fine thing to have a help your neighbor week. Right, neighbor? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that'd be a fine... And I... since we both feel that way about it, why not start right now, this minute? Now, McGee, I know what you're up to, and don't Because you... after all, that's true neighborism, helping your neighbor. Right, neighbor? McGee, that's... By terrible. golly, I'm, I'm glad we think alike, Mr. McGee. And uh, if you want to start help your neighbor week right now, you can count on me. Uh, you got another shovel? Right there behind you, neighbor. Good. Now, uh, you just come along with me. Yeah. Huh? A couple of months ago, they dumped some coal in our cellar by mistake. You see, we got an oil burner, and I, I've been wanting to shovel it all in barrels and send it back with a nasty note, and with your head... Hey, come back here with that shovel. <laughs> neighbor, hey, Les. Well, of all the silly wise guys... <laughs> Whew, boy, 
boy, this is work. At least it's shady here by the fence, but gee whiz, this is... Hey, Mr. McGee, hi. Oh, hi, Teeny. What you doing, Mr. McGee, with the shovel? What you doing besides leaning on it? I'm digging up a flower bed so Mrs. McGee can plant some flowers, sis, and I'm in no mood for light conversation, so don't start anything... What's this for, mister? What's this for, this little hole here? Did you make this little hole No, here? no, and run along, will you, because... Let me see there a minute. I don't remember seeing this dirt pushed up there in this little hey, hole. Hey, there's something in there. Huh? Looky, it's moving, see? What? It's a little animal or hey, something. Hey, get back, Teeny, get back. Look out. Gee, mister, you're not going to hit it with that shovel, the poor little thing. Stay back. It might be a rattlesnake or something. Rattlesnakes don't burrow, mister. Hey, here he comes. He's poking his little head out. Yeah. Well, for the... What the heck is that thing? <laughs> I don't know, but isn't he cute, sticking his head out? Looks like the burrow a mole makes, but that's not a mole or a gopher. I've seen plenty of them. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> Look at that pointed head and that little beard. Yeah. Boy, if he isn't the stupidest looking thing I ever... Oh, you hurt his feelings. There he goes, back in the hole. Boy, oh boy, if that isn't the oddest looking thing I ever... Molly! Hey, Molly, come on out here quick and bring the encyclopedia, the big one. I think we discovered something. There's more fun with the McGee shortly. Our natural resources are an integral part of this nation's strength and security. The popularity of the series was such that in June, Broadcasting Magazine announced that Fibber and Molly would debut in a subsequent daytime program. These fires, an average of 500 of them every day last year. NBC would continue to carve out a half hour of Sunday evening time for both Fibber and the Great Gildersleeve. It would be impossible to total the actual amount of damage done of our national loss in dollars in vitally needed timber, rangelands, wildlife, homes, property, and lives destroyed. And most appalling of all is the fact that 90% of this destruction was due to human carelessness or indifference. Yes, only 10% of all forest fires are caused by lightning. The rest are caused by men, women, and children. A little care, a little thoughtfulness is all that's needed to eliminate forest and grass fires. When you're out in the open, be doubly cautious. Don't throw away lighted cigarettes or matches and leave a campfire unattended. Always remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Right there, Molly. It stuck its head out of this hole right here. Hmm. Give me that description again and slowly. Well, like I said... He had a small pointed head. Yeah, and long curved teeth. Yeah, and little pointed ears that kind of droop like a cocker spaniel's. Mm -hmm. And a kind of a fat little nose parted in the middle. <laughs> yeah. My goodness, I wish he'd come up again. This I would like to see. Yes, so would I. I often wonder what McGee looked like as a baby, and this sounds like a perfect description. <laughs> oh, hi, Waddlebottom. Hello, Doctor. Yeah. Hello. Did you hear what we just saw, Teeny and me? I heard your description of what you said you saw. Hi, Doctor. Oh, hi, Teeny. You better get him out of the sun, Molly. He's cooked. Oh, is that so? <laughs> That's just like you, you big antiseptic skeptic. If it ain't something you can give ether to and take tonsils out of, you don't believe it. But you believe us, don't you, Molly? Sure, don't you, Miss McGee? Oh, never mind, Teeny. We're just wasting our time. Columbus had the same problem, same kind of people, disbelievers. Oh, now, McGee, I didn't say I didn't believe you. It's just, well, such a strange-sounding thing. Yes, if whatever you saw would stick his head out of that hole so Molly and I could get a look at it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shh. 
I think I hear something scratching down there. Yeah, everybody be quiet. Maybe he'll come out again. And if he does, no cracks now about how funny looking he is. That's what insulted him the last time we made him run away, and nobody will believe us, but because we... Teeny, shh. Now, let's just all sit down here, round the hole, and wait. That's it. Sooner or later, he'll come up, and you'll see what... <laughs> Hey, Molly, Doc, come on back, please. Any minute now. Yeah, he's been down in there a whole hour. He's got to make a break for it sometime. Yeah. Sorry, Teeny, I got to go. But if he does come out, McGee, you catch him. And if he fits that description you gave me, I'll give each of you kids a quarter. <laughs> so long. And you'd better get back to your spading, McGee. It's getting late. Dinner will be ready in a half an hour. Huh? Yeah. I think we made the whole thing up. Dad rat that little what's-it anyway. Making a couple of dopes out of us like that. Yeah. The least it could have done was show itself again. So they'd believe us. Just stick its stupid-looking head up out of that hole. There he is. There hey, he... quick, Teeny, grab him. Grab him. <laughs> oh, dead rat, the dead rat. He's gone again. Oh, gee. Hey, wait a minute. I got a terrific idea, Teeny. I got a piece of strong cord over here somewhere. Yeah, here it is. What you gonna do with the string, mister? You gonna tie some bait on it and fish down the hall? Nope. I'm making a noose, Teeny, and I'm gonna drape it around that hole, and the next time our little friend sticks his silly-looking noggin out of there... Oh, gee, mister, don't hurt him. He's cute, so don't... I won't hurt him. Wait till I get it fixed around the hole here. Hey, when we catch him, could I have him for a pet, hmm? Could I, hmm? He'll be swell to scare my teachers with. Toads and spiders don't work anymore. They're used to them. I got the trap all set. Now, let's be real quiet and wait, because... Hey, he's moving in there. Huh? Yeah, he's moving. I can hear him. Sounds like he's coming up again. He is. See, there's his whiskers. Okay, little Watsus. Just stick your head way out. I'm waiting for you this time, boy. Move out of the way, Teeny, so as I can give it a good yank. Don't, don't tear his beard now. That's the cutest part. Don't ruin it. Uh-oh. Here it comes. Here it comes. There's his little fat nose. Yeah. And his little pointed head. In the beard. Now wait. Wait his head comes clear out and... Huh? I got him! Hey, what the heck? He flew apart. Hi, gee whiz, Mr. McGee. Now you went and broke it. What? Oh, you ruined my little mechanical chipmunk. I didn't have a chance to pull the gag on anybody but you. Gag? You mean... Gag. You mean? Sure, I spent a whole half hour digging that hole and getting him all set. I've been squatting behind my fence there all afternoon working it, and now you ruined it. Well, I've all... You tore the valve out of it, you busted the spray. Ah, this is ridiculous. We'll say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. You have never heard anything like Monitor. Monitor, the newest of the new in NBC radio that defies description. Every secret door of the world opens up when you listen to Monitor. Starting this coming Saturday in the early morning until late Sunday evening, Monitor utilizes the speed of radio, the immediate sound of radio, the gigantic scope of radio to bring you anything and everything from the world of entertainment and ideas. You may hear a complete two-hour Broadway show or your next-door neighbor commenting on the State of the Union. Monitor will take you anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. 
Monitor is the show that is vitally there at the exact moment of happening. Hear this exciting and unusual new program, Monitor, starting Saturday. And your friends, the McGee's and the Great Gildersleeve, will be heard on Sundays as usual. Remember, Monitor NBC for the best in radio entertainment. Sake. Is that what that was out in our yard, a mechanical chipmunk? Yeah. Les bought it in a gag shop. <laughs> it has a long rubber tube attached that you bury in the ground, and every time you squeeze the rubber ball, his little head pops out of the hole, and his ears stand up, and he makes that funny noise that Teeny and I heard. Oh, <laughs> what'll I think of next? And why? Well, can I or can't I? Okay, here's a dollar. Who are you going to try it on? Doc Gamble, the big skeptic. Who else? Boy, oh boy, I can't wait to see the look on his fat puss when the thing pops out of that pot of geranium down to his office and the patients all run... Dearie, before you go. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Good night. Good night, all. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble and Robert Easton as Les. This is John Wald making a date with you for tomorrow, same time, to hear another zany adventure involving Fibber McGee and Molly. Join the great Gildersleeve for more fun in Summerfield tonight on the NBC Radio Network. Fibber McGee and Molly aired in serial format until March 23, 1956. After that, Jim and Marion Jordan joined Monitor in short vignettes. Did the general public realize that there was a change of lead actors in the Great Gildersleeve back uh, I in think, that time? I think many of them did not know. Mm-hmm. It was one of the things that the billing was different, but in those days people didn't pay all that much attention to billing. Mm-hmm. The voice had enough similarity that a lot of people for a long time anyway didn't know there was a change. I guess some people still don't know. The name uh, Gildersleeve is bigger than the name Perry or Waterman. Neither one of us have that personal identification. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, have the, you have the personal identification with the role of the great Gildersleeve. Well, a lot, of, a, lot of people, do, yes. a lot of people still say, oh, that was Hal Perry. Mm-hmm. And as I say, we both did it for nine years. So, yeah. It's amazing that that show ran that long. I, I can't imagine that Hal Perry would have thought in... Uh, you know, 1949, 1950, when he... You took it over in 50, didn't you, at the yeah. beginning of that? Did you think that it was going to last for, you know, I, that many more years? I had no idea at the time how long it would last. I think that Hal maybe got a little short shrift from his agent, because they thought they could deliver the show to CBS, mm-hmm. and they signed him to the contract. So now he was under contract at CBS. They had to produce a show for him. So they started a show called Honest Herald. Mm-hmm. And I think it was unfortunate what they tried to do was pattern the show after the Gildersleeve show. And of course, Gildersleeve was still on, mm-hmm. on NBC. So it didn't work. And it was too bad because Hal was a very, very versatile actor. He could do many, many, many voices, many, many things. And it would have been 
far better for him, I believe, had he developed another character mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a new show around it, and then that would have been, as the pattern was, gone on to television. It would have would have been another new good show, mm -hmm. radio, mm -hmm. television show. But with the sort of a copy of Gildersleeve, it just didn't work. At 10.15, the great Gildersleeve signed on starring Willard Waterman as Gildy. Waterman had been portraying Gildy since the fall of 1950 when Harold Perry left the program. NBC presents Willard Waterman as the great Gildersleeve, written by John Elliott and Andy White. You did the radio Gildersleeve right to the very end of radio, and near the end, I think. I think we were the last fifteen-minute shows, then, we, weren't you? For two years before the end of Arrow, we did it as a five-week, fifteen-minute show, mm -hmm. and it was very, very popular at that time. And then we went back after Crash dropped it to a half-hour format. We were the last audience mm -hmm. show in Hollywood. By that time, you were only doing one show then. Yes. You weren't doing two shows, one for the East Coast and one for the West Coast, were you? No, we, by that time, it was on tape. But that took a long time to happen because Kraft had a very adverse feeling about tape. They didn't like tape. <laughs> the way we got to taping, well, under Kraft's supervision anyway, I had to have an appendectomy. So I recorded the first scene and the last scene for what was to be the next show. And I did the show one Wednesday, went in Thursday morning to the hospital and had my operation. And in actuality, I could have done the show the next week, but they uh, did this to protect themselves. And then later when they found out that it didn't change the show any, mm -hmm. we were able to go to tape. So the other actors did the show live, but they, they inserted, the your, inserted your records. Your yeah. The record's opening and the record closes. Yeah. So you were kind of written out of the I body home, of the I show. I stayed home and listened to shows. It was a lot of fun. Our isn't as happy as he might be if he had more to do with it. Hey, Unc. What is it, Leroy? Did you see Judge Hooker's picture in the paper? No. Oh. Now look what the caption says. Opera Committee Chairman Hooker prepares to welcome stars. Yeah, let me see that. Don't you think that's a good picture of the judge, Mr. Gilsey? No, not especially, Bertie. It'd be hard for the judge to take a good picture. I think that's a good picture. Me too. Yes, yes. When you're an opera chairman, you're a pretty big celebrity, ain't you, Miss Gilsey? With all due respect to the judge, Bertie, to me he's still just a pretty big old goat. Yes. I'm just sore because they chose the judge instead of him. No, I'm not, Leroy. I might have had the post if I'd have fawned around Mrs. Pettibone the way the judge did. But I wouldn't stoop to it. I have too much dignity. Ah! Leroy. Well? As a matter of fact, the judge offered me a post on the committee, but I refused it. Mr. Gilsleeve didn't want to play second fiddle. No, it isn't that. I just don't like to do the work and have somebody else get his picture in the paper. I did it! I wonder who could be calling at this hour of the morning. It could be Piggy with his pet chipmunk. Chipmunk? Good morning, Bertie. Good morning, Judge Hooker. It's the judge. Oh, what a choice, a chipmunk or an old goat. Is the high mo gal of the man still home? Yes, sir. Come in, Judge. Thank you, Bertie. Hi, Judge. Hello, Leroy and Gilday. Hello, Judge. What gets you out too early? It isn't early. It only seems early to a sleepyhead like you, Gilday. <laughs> yeah, all right, Horace. Hey, that's a keen picture of you in the paper, Judge. Thank you. 
In fact, I'm calling in the interest of the opera, Gelder. If it's a donation, no, you No, 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 not at all. I came to ask you again if you'll serve as a committee of one to assist the cast and make them comfortable once they've arrived. Well, just what would I do? Well, specifically, look to their luggage. Luggage? See that they're comfortably ensconced in their quarters and be a general handyman for our celebrated guests. Why don't you, huh? Why, George, I refuse to flunky, that's why. But, Gildy, this is a civic project. And we should all put our shoulders to the wheel. Yeah, thanks, but I'd rather ride on the wagon. Most of the flunking, as you call it, will be done by the opera company's advance agent, who arrives today. Won't you reconsider, Gildy, old friend? No, sorry, Horace. I'm afraid not. Very well, Gildy. Good day, Leroy. Birdie. Bye, Judge. Bye, Judge. Ridi Pagliaccio, sultuamo in pronto. Sometimes I think the judge is off his rocker. Yeah, they're putting up a lot of opera posters around town. Big deal, all right. But I doubt if I'll even go. What's this lettered on Phoebe's show window? Come in and try a grand opera Sunday. An aria in good eating. Oh. Hello, Phoebe. Yeah, hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. What can I do for you today? Yeah, I see you're dishing up grand opera ice cream, Phoebe. <laughs> Just capitalizing on the fad at the moment. <laughs> Care to try an opera-type milkshake? No. In fact, the judge has disgusted me with a very word opera. The way I feel now, I'm not even going. You don't say. Imagine the old goat wanting me to flunky for the advance agent when he comes to town. Excuse me, Mr. Gildersleeve. Customer. Yeah, go right ahead, Phoebe. All right. Are you the proprietor? Say, no. Uh, Yes, ma'am. I'm Mr. Peavy. Oh, Mr. Peavy. I'm Shirley Ward. What can I do for you, Miss Ward? Shirley, huh? Pretty. Well, I'm advance agent for the opera company, and I wondered if I may put up a poster in your window. She's the advance agent? Yes, ma'am. Just help yourself. Uh, uh, Young lady, if you'll allow me, I'll be glad to do that for you. Well? You you might fall, you know. High heels. (laughs) <laughs> that would be very kind of you. Excuse me, Phoebe. Stand aside, please. Uh, Miss Ward, this is Mr. Gildersleeve. How do you do, Mr. Gildersleeve? Miss Ward, this is a great privilege. As city water commissioner and active civic leader, I'm a great opera patron. Oh, how wonderful. Yes, indeed. Aren't I, Phoebe? Well, no, I wouldn't tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Phoebe loves to tease. He's an old friend of mine. Well, I better get up in the window. Those posters should have been up days ago. But I've only just arrived. We've been waiting for the opera. Yes, sir. We were just discussing it when you came in. Yes, Mr. Gildersleeve was talking about the opera. Well, it's wonderful to see so much interest here. Yeah, that's one thing we do. Show plenty of interest, Miss Ward. Oh, my, yes. Well, thank you very much. I do hope you enjoy our stay in your nice little city. You bet we will. Goodbye. And goodbye, Miss Ward. Goodbye. <laughs> well, Phoebe, I have to run over and see Judge Hooker about my assignment. I thought you didn't want to flunky, Mr. Gildersleeve. Look, Peavy, this is a civic project, and we should all put our shoulders to the wheel. <laughs> my, my. Did you feel that by doing two or three voices in a show that you were uh, thinning down the pay that you were getting? Would they hire you to do three or four voices? Well, in the beginning, that was true. And then when AFTRA... The forerunner of AFTRA came in, why, there was a provision on doubling. You could do one voice. 
Among other things, and if you did more than that, you got a, uh, another fee. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, uh, in later years changed, so you got a fee for whatever you did. And helps them to be tolerant, responsible citizens. Uh, Tom, that was one of the things in radio, which uh, doesn't apply to television. You could play anything you could sound. Anything you could sound like. And we all did many different characters on the same show a lot of times. That was your value to the producer or the director, that you could double, triple sometimes, We were hireable because they knew we could do a couple of different characters. Freedom to worship constitutes a precious national heritage that we should both appreciate and exercise. Yeah, I'll ring the judge once more. Wonder where he's been keeping himself. Just when I need him. Oh, hello, Leroy. You using the phone? No. I'm tattooing Alexander Graham Bell's picture on my ear with the receiver. Oh, brother. Oh, well, I give up. He just isn't home. Who isn't home? Judge Hooker. You home, Miss Gilsey? Yes, Bertie. Uh, Judge Hooker hasn't phoned about placing me on that opera committee again, has he? No, sir. You mean you'd be honest? Well, I've been thinking about it, and perhaps it is my civic duty, my boy. Yeah? You must have gotten a look at that Miss Shirley Ward who just came to town. Miss Shirley Ward? Who is she? The opera's advance agent. A good-looking red-haired girl. She is not. It's more a copper-gold shade. There you have seen her. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Hunk is now ready to help out the grand opera, Bertie. He'll take up tickets, stand on his head, sing tenor, anything. Mr. Gilsey sure has changed since this morning. (laughs) No, Bertie, it's just that I realized I was wrong. Yes, sir. Uh, Where did you meet Miss Ward, Leroy? He came up to school to bring some student tickets. Oh? I got a good chance to compare her with your old girlfriend, Miss Henshaw. No, Leroy. She stacks up good. Leroy. Just kidding. Well, now that Miss Ward has come to town, I guess it's off with the old and all with the new, Leroy. I'll say. Yeah, all right, Bertie. Miss Gilsey, you know what this is, Miss Ward came to town? Yes, Bertie. That's right. Off with the old and on with the new. <laughs> oh, for around this house, I'm considered nothing but a dilly-dallier. Well? <laughs> At last, the judge is back in his office. I've wasted most of the day waiting for him. Judge? Old friend? Oh, hello, Gildy. May I talk to you a moment? Well, you make it snappy. I have an appointment shortly. Well, I've reconsidered and I'm ready to accept that appointment to your opera committee. Where do I start? You don't. What's the matter? Gildy, I came to you and I needed someone to take over the lesser chores and you failed yeah, But now I realize I was wrong, Horace. I'm perfectly willing to cooperate with that, uh, that advance agent you mentioned. Sorry, Gildy, but I've reserved that pleasure for myself. The advance agent for the opera happens to be a most attractive young lady. <laughs> no. Yes. Well, Judge, you might let me in on the committee since you promised once. Indian giver. It was all of your own making, Gildy. But now I've completed my opera task force and we wait only for the overture. Oh, am I intruding? What? Oh, Miss Ward. Hello, Judge. And Mr. Gildersleeve, how nice. Well, we meet again, Miss Ward. (laughs) You two know each other? I should say we do. Yes, indeed. I helped Miss Ward put up a poster. 
Oh? George, Mr. Gildersleeve is so enthusiastic about the opera. We really should give him something to do. Yeah, I was just talking to the judge about that. Well... I know. Why don't I take him with me today? You have so many other responsibilities, Judge. You would, you, Miss Ward. But I was going with you. No, Judge. You command at headquarters. Mr. Gildersleeve and I will go out into the fields. You bet. The fields, the woods. And maybe I can drive you out to my reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Come along, Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, if that's your wish. Goodbye, Judge. Oh, Balderdash. In just a moment, the great Gildersleeve will have more to say. Who are the people behind the headline? The hard-working newsmen and women who bring you the facts. You'll find the answer tomorrow night on The Big Story. The Big Story is a true and dramatic account of the newspaper world... And you'll go behind the scenes to hear the documented case of a reporter's search for a front-page scoop. Sometimes it's a glamorous business, sometimes a grim one. But it's always exciting, so be on hand tomorrow and every Wednesday for the big story. And don't forget, Wednesday also means quiz and comedy with You Bet Your Life, the funniest quiz on the air starring the one, the only, Groucho Marx. With Groucho asking the questions, there's no predicting what will happen. But right answers, wrong answers, or funny answers... We can predict that you'll enjoy each minute of You Bet Your Life. That's tomorrow night for a fascinating look at the newspaper world behind the scenes on The Big Story and 30 minutes of question and answer fun with Groucho in You Bet Your Life, both brought to you by NBC Radio, your best in entertainment. Well, Miss Ward, it's been quite a day. You've been so nice to me, Mr. Gildersleeve. It's been my pleasure, Miss Ward. Uh, Shirley? <laughs> and I'm glad you brought me to your attractive home. Well, I thought you'd enjoy some of Bertie's tea and cookies. Oh, what a charming bachelor's life. No, rather lonely, I'm afraid, until you came to town. No girls in your life? Girls? No. Excuse me! Yes, Bertie? Telephone for you. Oh, the office, I suppose. No office, Miss Irene. Oh, good night, folks. The Great Gildersleeve is played by Willard Waterman and is a transcribed NBC Radio Network production directed by Virgil Reiner. Included in the cast were Walter Tetley, Lillian Randolph, Regina Gleason, Earl Ross, and Richard Legrand. Musical composition by Jack Meekin. This is John Lang inviting you to listen again tomorrow night when The Great Gildersleeve becomes involved with opening night at the opera. You bet. I've already got my ticket. <laughs> Here, listen to Washington tonight on most NBC radio stations. Well, we're approaching station break time in our celebration. But rather than my saying, this is Ben Grower, etc., etc., listen to what the late H.B. Kaltenborn, first dean of NBC Newsmen, once said about this traditional pause. The announcer would suck in his breath and rattle off 
This is station WEAF, WJR, WTAG, WTIC, WLIT, WCSH, naming every station on the hookup. That was in 1926. A few months, and several breathless announcers later, we bought the electrical chimes. They cost only $48.50 at the time, but think of all the trouble they save as we now take a short pause for station identification. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Stand by. Ready with San Quentin. Okay. Hello, Hello Walter McGraw. Good. Be with you in a minute. Okay. This is Monitor and Walter Kiernan at NBC's Radio Central. Coming up, direct and transcribed during the next hour on Monitor. Lights out at San Quentin. A Monitor report from the Mid-Atlantic. Laughter with Honest Henry Morgan and roguish Roger Price. And Monitor music from around the country and around the world. All of this in the next 60 minutes. Now, news headlines. Morgan Beatty. Eleventh hour, General Motors strike negotiations in Detroit. They continue. Religious rioting flares in Buenos Aires. Le Mans, death toll, revised downward to 77. President Eisenhower returned to Washington. Now, news in fair detail. Religious rioting flared today in Buenos Aires. Catholic church supporters clashed with anti-Catholic backers of President Perón. At least four persons were injured in the fighting. The Perón government has clamped a partial news blackout on Argentina, but... The Montevideo reports indicate that the fighting continues. Back home, General Motors employees are scheduled to start leaving their jobs in less than an hour. Monitor's correspondent just outside the negotiating room has the latest on that story. So, it's Monitor to WWJ Detroit and Carl Cedarberg. From our Monitor listening post on the fifth floor of the General Motors building in Detroit, there is less optimism now that a settlement between GM and the CIO United Auto Workers Union will be announced before midnight. Local issues appear to have snagged a final settlement. We have learned that the union and company are agreed on the general or so-called national issues, but individual plant problems have dragged out the talks. As the minutes tick off before the deadline, it's after 11 p.m. in the east, it is believed the union will delay issuing a strike call if the talks extend beyond the midnight deadline. This much is certain. General Motors and the union have agreed on the general terms of guaranteed wages for the company's 350,000 production workers. That, in itself, is the goal of union president Walter Ruther. 
We do not know how close the pending GM agreement approximate last week's Ford contract. We do know the union can claim a form of guaranteed pay from the second of the big three automobile manufacturers. How extensive and what percentage of pay, we may know in a matter of minutes. This is Carl Cedarberg. now back to monitor in Radio Central, New York. President Eisenhower returned to Washington this evening after spending the weekend at his farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Ray Shearer, White House correspondent, how does it feel to follow the president around these days? Well, the, the, the trouble, Morgan, is his new little airplane of the president's. It's hard to keep up with. Ike takes off on his little hummingbird, and 30 minutes later, he's landing at Gettysburg or wherever it is. Reporters who are paid to follow the president around can't all hire tiny airplanes. There aren't that many, and it's too expensive. Now, take Friday, for instance. The president was flying up to Penn State University, where his brother Milton is prexy. He was going to land about 4 o'clock, so most of us wheeled out the family car and started out way ahead of time yeah, to I be remember there when that. he landed. Uh, Ray, wait a minute. I Four remember. Ace Washington reporters, you'd know their names in a minute, started on the trail in the family Ford. They loaded it up with picnic lunches, soda pop and all, but they neglected to stick in a road map. When they got to Chambersburg, they zigged when they should have zagged and wound up in Gettysburg, 80 miles the wrong way, and two of these boys Pulitzer Prize winners. Two other reporters went to the wrong airport at Penn State, missed the president. One correspondent came up on the train, had to transfer to a bus, took him seven and a half hours. Yesterday at the commencement it rained. President Eisenhower spoke outdoors in a drizzle. The other President Eisenhower, the college president, said he wasn't sure he should give degrees to those graduating in meteorology. Anyhow, the rain simplified traveling a little, too foggy to fly, couldn't even see the mountaintops. The president motored over to his farm at Gettysburg. And tonight it was dark, and so he was driven those two hours and ten minutes into Washington. I don't know what the answer is, Morgan. Maybe we should all take flying lessons or learn to be paratroopers. This is Ray Scherer, now back to Monitor in Radio Central, New York. I tried to stop you, Ray, to tell the people how tired you were, but you wouldn't let me. Put your earphones on next time, old boy, will you? <laughs> By the way, there's one East-West meeting that's receiving very little front-page attention... It will soon take place in the heart of America. For that story, Monitor goes to Davenport, Iowa, and Herb Plambeck. Diplomacy on the citizen-farmer level will be demonstrated here in Iowa next month. A group of 12 Russian agriculturists will spend two weeks in Iowa to see American agriculture in action. The Soviets will visit our world-famed corn hog farms, see processing plants, stop at Iowa State College, study rural services, and enjoy country fried chicken with all the trimmings. At the same time, 12 U.S. farmers and ag researchers will go behind the Iron Curtain to observe collective farms in Russia. The Soviet Iowa Farm Exchange was proposed earlier this year by Des Moines Register editors. Messrs. Khrushchev, Bulganin, and other common form leaders hope to gain know-how to bolster sagging Russian food production. President Eisenhower, with American farm leaders and the Iowa hosts, hope the exchange will help achieve better international understanding. To this end, Iowa will have the red carpet out for the red farmers when they visit here. This is Herb Planbeck. Now back to Radio Central. Thank you, Herb. Something new in international relations. Now, a late bulletin. International News Service reports at least one dead in the religious rioting in Buenos Aires. And... A late INS report also says that President Perón has ordered Parliament into special session tomorrow. Now, sports. Walter Kiernan. Taking a look at the monitor baseball scoreboard, we find that the American League pennant race tightened up considerably-ish, all with considerability. This afternoon, first place New York Yankees drooped 
repeat droop to doubleheader to the Cleveland Indians 10 to 2 and 7 to 3. Meanwhile, the second place Chicago White Sox were taking two games from the Washington Senators, 1 to naught, 8 to 4. So the White Sox now trail the Yankees by only two and a half games, and the third place Indians are only three and a half games off the pace. Elsewhere in the American League this afternoon, Baltimore and Kansas City split with the Orioles taking the first game 7 to 2, the Athletics white winning the nightcap 3 to nothing. Boston and Detroit rained out. In the National League, the Dodgers maintained a very comfortable 10 and a half game lead over Chicago by splitting a doubleheader with the Cubs this afternoon. Chicago took the first one 9 to 5, the Dodgers came back to take the second 6 to 2. New York and St. Louis also split with the Giants taking the opener 8-3 and the Cards winning the second in 13 innings, 6-5. There was another split between Milwaukee and Pittsburgh. Pirates won the first 5-3. Braves took the nightcap 6-5. Philadelphia beat Cincinnati 12-8. Second game of that scheduled doubleheader was rained out. And speaking of rain, what can you tell us about the weather in general, Miss Monitor? No weather. Next. There's no weather. Everything's fine. Next. Our monitor scientific note. You have only one chance in six trillion of being hit by a falling meteor during the next 30 minutes. You're wondering about Miss Monitor, Walter. She was so fascinated by the ball score, she just wanted to check them up. She'll have weather a little later on. What about that unexpected rain, I think? Well, it's monitor time, which is exactly eight minutes after the hour. A good time for music. Caught the muse. Now monitor takes you to Birdland in New York and the monitor music of Al Hibbler. What have you got down there, Fred Collins? John Malachi, ladies and gentlemen. Ernie Farrell on bass. Charles Brissip, drum. Didi. Uh, I don't get this bit at all because I'm just as hung as you are. And I, uh, I'm sorry to hang out like this, too. Yeah. What's happened? I just got cut off. The whole thing. I'm getting France again. No, they're back to monitor now. They just switched off the news. They're back to the monitor show up at Radio Central. We're going to go on shortly. I hope. You're on now. This is a man in his shorts. Fred, you're on. You're on. Oh, we're on. Yes, isn't it interesting? I didn't hear Millions of potential <laughs> viewers, our listeners. But here, my goodness, is the great singing star Al Hibbler and his smash record from Birdland, Unchained Melody. As Monitor entered its final hour, like many other debuting programs, it was not without its hiccups. That's part of what made live radio so exciting. The listener at home experienced Monitor's growing pains, along with its communicators. In the drama field, you not only have the human interest type moving drama, such as we had in Mr. Arm, but you have all these wonderful things that are very brief and had no usefulness in our old radio. I'm thinking now of the one, the shortest ghost story in the world that you may have heard that goes like this. The last man in the world was sitting in his room. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. Stinger, back to the communicator, and we're on to the next subject. And the next subject might be something else. It might be an actor who does uh, plays in our gallery of famous fictional characters or uh, a scene from living persons as we build what will eventually be obituaries, but looking on the brighter side, more biography, or we'll do accolade, 
pick out the people who deserve an accolade for the week, something that they've done. Or complaints, beefs. People, now we go to you and say, get us ten housewives, each one with a complaint, and have them record, I'm Mrs. Harrison Crean of 29 Fenachrome on such and such a street, and my complaint is, and then she says it, and at the end, again, back to us. I think the billboard poster plan has tremendous vitality on the 10-year view, and that's what we have. We're, this is not another retreat. This is a rewrite of the medium as though it had never been before to do the greatest job and to be harnessed in the right way to do the greatest product selling job for our advertisers. And if it works right, we'll have the big audiences again, although in a little different form, and we'll have the advertising again in a pattern unlike the old program pattern, but a pattern that is effective and useful and works for the advertiser. If it does that, in comes the money. And if the money comes in, then we can broaden our scope and do a lot of things and, and we'll be in business a long time together. Fine, thank you, Al Hibbler. Wonderful to have that hit melody of yours, Unchained Melody. Say, Fred Collins. Yes, Ben. Uh, we won't have time to stay with you any longer. We're just getting a sampling of what's going on at Birdland before we hop over to our next visit. By the way, is it Kenton who's at Birdland next week? That's true. The Great Stan. The Great Stanley, indeed. Well, there'll be a large order of Kenton music from Birdland when we have monitor visits next week at this time, or approximately, right? And all the fans here at Birdland will be listening to monitor, too. And thank you, Ben, for Al Hibbler. Thank you. Ben Grauer back at NBC's Radio Central, back from Birdland and the songs of Al Hibbler. Speaking of Birdland, let's see, speaking of Birdland. <laughs> yes, there at the end of our great massive communicators bench, here's a bird that just landed, our television monitor, Henry Morgan. Thank you, Ben. Good evening, anybody. Here's Morgan with a fantastic new public service. We figure that a lot of people are out of town on weekends and miss their favorite TV programs, so I'm here to bring you up to date on what you didn't see. Well, first today, on your behalf, I watched the first hour of Monitor, this program. It was on both radio and TV, you know. It was sort of interesting. I liked it. It started with somebody introducing Mr. Uh, Weaver, I think his name was, the president of NBC. And uh, Mr. Weaver, is it, introduced to Mr. Fleming. And Mr. Fleming introduced uh, Garraway. And after a while, they introduced Clifton Fadiman. And during the hour it was on TV, everybody introduced something. One man introduced Hermosa Beach. One introduced uh, Idlewild Airport. One introduced a quintet from Chicago. It's a new thing in radio. They now use five famous people to say what one lonesome announcer used to say years ago. <laughs> Sometime during the show, they took us up to Harvard to meet the president. He has a very tiny mouth, in case you missed the TV part. Teeny weeny little mouth. And uh, he had a spiritual message. It was, he said that... Uh, Churches were being built by leaps and bounds, but he didn't say whether anybody was going to them. Bob and Ray were on a couple of times, but the funniest part of the show, I think, was when they switched to Chicago for the Art Van Dam Quintet. The quintet started playing some very high-class music, oh, about eight bars, and all of a sudden, a very sexy woman's voice said, The temperature in Aberdeen, Scotland, is 51, cloudy. 
Madrid, 68, cloudy. And when, uh, she went all around the world uh, so that when she finished, the quintet was finished and we came back to New York. And now on TV, you didn't see the girl, incidentally, you just heard her. So in case you missed the TV show, you didn't miss anything. She wasn't there. <laughs> now, um, I'm what? Oh, I see. I've just been handed a bulletin. <laughs> Your services no longer are required for the... Oh, well, actually, the job done in general on Monitor was simply sensational, but it's not my business to say so. Anyway, after a while, I watched some stuff you wouldn't care about in the late afternoon. Then at 7, a new program started on Network B. It's called Pride of the Family and stars Faye Ray and Paul Hartman. It's a family program, mother, father, the two kids. You've seen it somewhere. I'll say this for it. It's not controversial. This program couldn't upset anybody. It's probably true that many families live the way this one does, but the reason they buy TV sets is to get away from the way they live. There isn't a great deal of entertainment in discussing what's for lunch, even with Faye Ray. If you saw this, you might have noticed this coincidence. They were having chicken noodle soup for lunch with some sandwiches. They mentioned it about five times. And um, what does that say? I must say I'm Henry Morgan? Oh, oh, that's what the other note said. That uh, The first three minutes I was talking to Limbo, California. <laughs> well, welcome to our new network. This is Monitor, a review of the past. Well, the, um, I was telling you about this uh, Pride of the Family show where for 20 minutes they talked about what they were having for lunch. The coincidence was the sponsor's Campbell's Soup, which was quite exciting. They also had a dog in it. But if I told you what the dog was doing according to the story, you wouldn't believe me. At 7.30, at 7.30 tonight, you missed Mr. Peepers. Now, the, <laughs> the plot... The plot was that he needed... Listen, if I had to identify myself, I'll explain what I think I'm doing. <laughs> uh, this is a review of what you missed on television this afternoon in case you were wealthy and went out of town for a while. Um, it's a service, sort of. Well, the Mr. Peeper show that you missed, the plot was... Incidentally, all times mentioned are Eastern uh, Daylight Time. The plot, well, you couldn't tell in the room I'm in because there are 11 clocks on the wall for people who get all nervous about what time is it in Istanbul, for instance. We have a clock for that. At the tone, it'll be 6.17 in Istanbul. Boom! Eastern Halva time. <laughs> you wind up your own Turk. It says, this peeper's plot is very complex. <laughs> now, he needed a raise and the school board wouldn't give it to him but they changed their minds at five minutes of eight Eastern Daylight Saving Time. <laughs> now, this is usually... <laughs> it's a fairly good show, usually, but uh, sometimes they get so deep into a kind of winsomeness that they're in danger of choking to death on cuteness. For example, on tonight's show, or maybe it's yesterday where you are, they, uh, Mr. Cox would throw away a paper cup at intervals, and you'd hear a crash, a glass crash. <laughs> See, it still has got me upset. It's a kind of fourth-dimensional whimsy, you know, that's very nerve-wracking. Of course, while I was watching Mr. Peepers, uh, I was listening to the Giants on radio trying to throw away a baseball game. They'd beat St. Louis in the first game, which you probably knew, but it was too much for their skinny blood. They were winning the second game, but they didn't really want to. And when the New York Giants don't want to win, I tell you, they have a kind of team spirit that you just can't get past. It took them till 9 o'clock Eastern time to lose, but they lost. 
La Palm was pitching, by the way, and the Giants couldn't hit him with their fists. Well, I tuned back into monitor, and the sexy girl was giving the temperature in Copenhagen. And I have just been giving uh, walking papers. So, uh, Morgan will be on the same corner, theoretically, in front of... <laughs> Again, I think next Saturday, roughly at about this time. Saturday, Thank you. Saturday Good night. Well, originally it was supposed to be both. I, I think Saturday and Sunday, Ben. Oh, good Why don't you come both nights, Henry? I'd love to. We'd love to have you. That's not an invitation, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in writing. Henry Morgan monitors television for you each week. Coming up, monitor music, monitor stars, monitor news. Right now, this is monitor going places and doing things. Take one. <laughs> Henry Morgan began as a page at WMCA in 1932. He held a number of jobs until October of 1940 when Mutual put him on live over WOR for the daily 15-minute comedy series. It was called Here's Morgan. Morgan claimed to care nothing for prestige. He quickly became known for his self-deprecating humor and his willingness to battle with sponsorship for their phony marketing ploys. Although acclaimed by his peers, he was never able to crack a double-digit rating. Morgan found himself off the air in June of 1950. But Pat Weaver believed in Morgan's acidic style. One could argue that by 11.15, the entire Monitor crew was a bit slap-happy, and Morgan's characterizations were filled with innuendo. General Motors and CIO negotiators are exactly 40 minutes from strike deadline. For a 25-second sec checkup on this to WWJ Detroit and Carl Cedarberg. We are still here on the fifth floor corridor of the General Motors building where down the hall the negotiators for the UAW and the General Motors Corporation continue their negotiations. We understand that local issues appear ha to have snagged the final settlement. However, we have learned that the union and company are agreed on the general or so-called national issues, but individual plant problems have dragged out the talks. And it is believed the union will delay issuing a strike call if the talks extend beyond the midnight deadline. This is Carl Cedarberg, now back to Monitor in Radio Central, New York. Back at Monitor, the new NBC radio service, and now a Monitor historical fact. Lincoln's Gettysburg address was 725 Court Street. On the move again to the Blue Note in Chicago, this time in the Monitor music of Sauter Finnegan. Righto. Here we are in Chicago, and we're right here in the Blue Note, and I'd like to correct an address error I made on an earlier pickup. We're here at Madison and Clark. I moved a whole building the last time. And we're all set now with the brilliant music of Sauter and Finnegan, and here is our first selection tonight before an enchanted audience, and it's the wonderful marching song from Battle Cry, Honey Babe, a tremendous arrangement. Take it. In 1955, the president of the United Automobile Workers was Walter Wally Ruther, who led the union through one of its best periods. Ruther pitted the big three automakers, Chrysler, Ford, and GM, against each other. Doing so allowed the UAW to raise the floor of workers' annual wages and attain paid vacation time. 
1950, Ruther negotiated a five-year contract with GM that protected automakers from annual strikes. He did so by giving up bargaining rights over some issues in exchange for extensive health, unemployment, and pension benefits, as well as expanded vacation time and inflationary wage adjustments. The contract shaped labor management relations in the auto industry for decades and became known as Ruther's Treaty of Detroit. In early June, the UAW and Ford were once again negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. A deal was reached on June 6th on a new three-year contract. It covered over 140,000 employees. Six days later on June 12th, the UAW agreement was set to expire with General Motors. If nothing was signed by midnight, workers were scheduled to walk off the job. Billboarding the news specials for the approaching hour will be a consistent feature of Monitor. There will be no repetition of the same five-minute pattern hour after hour. We plan to achieve editorial variety by introducing analysis, overseas pickups, spot pickups on breaking stories, background material, biographies. It will never be a matter of the same old news. We'll use the mobility of the network in its utmost in this respect. Next on Monitor will come the sports package, as long or short as the sports news demands. Baseball, a complete rundown of all major games. Spot pickups of important events and progress. Here again, we'll go to them as they happen, when they happen. It may be early evening in the east, but they're racing at this moment in California at Santa Anita. And we'll tell you now that within the next 20 minutes, we'll switch to the big race as the horses reach the post. Honey Babe, done for you by the Sauter Finnegan Orchestra. Bill Finnegan led that one. Eddie Sauter steps up in front of the band now, and Bill Finnegan stands beside me while I ask him a question. What are you going to do for us next, and why? Well, we have a piece of violence by Eddie. It's called <laughs> The Loop about Chicago. The Loop from Chicago, that is. That makes a great deal of sense, Bill, because that's right where we're broadcasting from, is The Loop in Chicago. This is a tremendous tone poem type of thing with... Excitement and some noise. Huh? Much excitement, like the loop. Suppose you cue Eddie to cue the band and let's hear it. All right. All right, Ed. Perhaps no NBC communicator understood the Chicago jazz scene better than Dave Garraway. One day, the chief announcer called me in and said, Garraway, uh, two of the guys have got no way to get home except by the L, and you've got a car, so the 12 to 2 shift is going to be yours because they'd, they'd have to take a cab or something, and you can drive home. And they live far north, and you don't live far north. Well, okay. It was me in two hours. And there was me and my Hawaiian techniques. First I was going to do it with uh, popular music, and then I thought of symphonic music, and then a good friend of mine said, why don't you let me build you a really good jazz show? I know jazz, and he did very well. Mm -hmm. He built a jazz show, and as he built it, I found that I didn't really know anything about jazz. But I discovered it, and as I discovered it, my enthusiasm for what I was discovering bubbled over, 
and somebody in the ecstasy of happiness is an audible sound and uh, transmits in both senses goes and makes the other guy feel good too I think and that show the 1160 club it was called 1160 meaning midnight or because it was a record by that title was the first successful show we had it was due to Jules Herbervold, the program manager, that it stayed on because I did a lot of verbal things in it that were eccentric by normal standards. Odd stories and offbeat stories that weren't usually told, a lot of which I swiped from the New Yorker magazine, for example. <laughs> like my only joke. I don't tell jokes anymore. I found that if I try to tell a joke, I step on the end so often I'll screw it up somehow on the, on the last word that I just try to avoid it. But I would say something like, I understand that the uh, night watchman at the Audubon Society has been seen sleeping with his head under his arm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, standing on one foot too. Uh, and just let it go at that. And, and this was all alone in the studio. Uh -huh. We were not allowed to have musicians as guests. There was a music strike on at that oh, time. Uh -huh. or, or, no, that was just a general rule. No striking was involved. No musician could be a guest. It's uh, very strange. So we had to do without guests in general. Occasionally we had non-musical guests, but not very many. Because I was interested in the point-to-point, person-to-person kind of communication, not the three-way mm -hmm. triangular thing, which is an entirely different mechanism where empathy doesn't enter into it very much, mm -hmm. like empathy entered into that show. Tom Mercy at the Blue Note in Chicago. That was the music of the Sauter Finnegan Orchestra, broadcast with the courtesy of the American Federation of Musicians, James C. Petrillo, President. Here's a golfing tip from Monitor's Spunky Sports Department. If you are topping your drives, try turning the ball upside down. The time, 29 minutes after the hour. In Manila, 12.30 a.m. in Shanghai, 2.30 a.m. in Sydney, Paris, 4.30 a.m. In the next half hour, Monitor goes to San Quentin, Washington, D.C., Hollywood, California, Hamburg, Germany. Stand by as we monitor the world for you direct and transcribed. This is Monitor, NBC's new radio service.
this the last day, John? The last day, yep, yep. We're trying not to be sad here because we're having so many friends and people like you who have such funny and fond memories hmm. of it. Let uh, me see, last day, I started in 55, 20 years ago. What extraordinary changes. I'm trying to think of some of the people who used to drop into Monitor. A lot of people came in live, and then some on tape. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. He have had separate paths now, successfully, but they were a big comedy team. Ernie Kovacs was around doing spots with us. Good Lord. He wasn't a communicator. He just came in so. to do spots. And yeah. Bob and Ray. They told me that Bob and Ray used to sit here live whenever they needed live. something funny. to say, Bob and Ray, do something funny. That's right. Like they used to <laughs> the real old days of radio. We, uh, you know, announcers in the beginning of radio had to be singers. I'm talking the real beginning, 1925, like the late, great Milton Cross. Because if something went wrong in the program that you were to announce didn't turn up, you'd go to sing. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, that's true. Um, Alwyn Bach, uh, Graham McNamee. Uh, was a singer, uh, and so and so. So similarly, uh, standby comedians, Bob and Ray. See, I worked with Mr. Cross for uh, five, six years. You know, I said, call me Milton for heaven's sake. Yeah. I could never bring myself to do it. I always yeah. said, Mr. Cross. He was a darling, sweet guy. Yeah. Back to Monitor, I used to work with Frank Gallup. Yes. And Frank and I had a wonderful, of course, we, you know, tease each other. The script department prepared the chatter for the communicators, but we didn't chat their way. We did our own chatter. We just went off the script like mad. Did he ever uh, do anything back, or was he just Mr. Suave all the he time? He was Mr. Suave all the time, but he'd have a way of saying little incisive things that had a, a little sting to them, but always in good humor. Always in good humor. No bad times ever I monitor, I guess, huh? Surely a bad times. Bad times when they said, sorry, boys, that's it. That comes to everybody. Into each life, some cancellation must fall. When a guy on the other side of the desk says, that's it, uh, Well, uh, JBT, I'm going to ask you. Here it is. This is the last of, what, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. I would say it's been two delicious decades. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ben Gar. By June 12, 1955, many NBC broadcasters had been associated with the network for more than 25 years. Like NBC's president, Pat Weaver, they'd seen radio grow from wireless telegraphy into a broadcasting powerhouse that stretched from both coasts. And like Pat Weaver, they'd seen television sweep in. There was no guarantee, as history played out, that the entirety of NBC's radio employees would be able to migrate to TV. For many at NBC, Monitor had to work so that they could. Back with Monitor, direct and transcribed from New York's Radio Central. 30 minutes of music and action yet to go. Then, what's next in sight? Well, Morgan, on tap right now, a short hop over to New York's fashionable East 50s. We now monitor the Embers. A jazz parlor, Artie Shaw and George Shearing had at one time both called home. Monitor moves down to the Embers in New York, and the monitor music of Jack Elliott Trio. Is our man about Midtown there, Fred Collins? Right, old Ben, and here we go with Jack Elliott and the Trio from Embers and Lullaby of Birdland. Mm -hmm. 
Embers was a mid-century New York City restaurant and nightclub located at 161 East 54th Street between 3rd and Lexington Avenues. It was part of an area in Midtown with more than 20 clubs, all playing jazz until early in the morning. The Embers was opened in late 1951 by former jazz musician Ralph Watkins. He'd been involved with clubs such as Bop City and the Royal Roost. The menu featured such a la carte items as southern fried chicken, western baby back ribs, and roast pork with apple rings. It featured many notable jazz acts over the years, like the Jack Elliott Trio. And here, Ben, is Jack Elliott. We'd like to play for your listening pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, our arrangement of almost like being in love. Jack Elliott was born Erwin Elliott Zucker on August 6, 1927 in Hartford, Connecticut to Romanian Jewish parents. He graduated from the Hart School of Music and became an acclaimed pianist in the 1950s, playing with both jazz bands and classical composers. He was known for combining Eastern European classical music with modern American jazz, giving his repertoire a distinctive style. In 1963, Judy Garland noticed Elliott and hired him to be her Hollywood TV show arranger. From there, he worked with Andy Williams and conducted NBC TV specials. If you saw a TV show in the 1970s, it was likely Elliot worked on it. He wrote themes for Night Court, Barney Miller, Starsky and Hutch, and Charlie's Angels. He later had a noted partnership with Carl Reiner, scoring films like The Jerk, Oh God, Where's Papa, and The Comic. Absent of Reiner, he produced the Blade Runner soundtrack. Elliot was also musical director for the Academy Awards, the Emmy Awards, the Grammy Awards, the Kennedy Center Honors, and the 1984 Summer Olympics. He was nominated for an Academy Award, two Emmys, and won three Broadcast Music Film and TV Awards. He later created the Henry Mancini Institute and co-founded the American Jazz Philharmonic. He passed away on August 18, 2001. What was that, Ben? Ask him for a bit more. Just a little bit. Just a little bit more if something's got to give, huh? Thank you. 
Stand by, Washington. Are we clear to San Quentin? Hollywood, are you ready for us? Hello, Washington. Monitor, here in New York. Morgan Beatty speaking. Coming in to Monitor's hearing range, a Monitor report from San Quentin Prison just before lights out. Music from Hollywood. Rudels from Roger Price. Stargazing. And now to the United States Weather Bureau in Washington. This is Bob Ferry from the National Weather Analysis Center. From late reports just received, it appears that thundershower activity, which has been so prevalent over the northeastern quarter of the nation this afternoon and evening, is beginning to let up, although showers are forecast until shortly after midnight from the eastern lakes region and middle Atlantic states into New England. Some of these thundershowers got a bit nasty this afternoon, with gusts reaching to near 50 miles per hour at Wilmington, Delaware, and Lakehurst, New Jersey. The weather disturbance, which has plagued the eastern half of the country over the weekend, is forecast to move northeastward into eastern Canada, resulting in a slow improvement in weather for the eastern states during the next day or so. Light rain and northerly winds kept temperatures in the 50s throughout the Great Lakes area today, not much different than that reported at Fairbanks, Alaska, where the high for the day was 50. In the Great Plains region, it was fair with cool temperatures in the Dakotas, giving way to hot weather in Texas with 103 at Presidio. With low pressure once again in control from the Rockies to the high Sierras, thunder showers were frequent in this area with hail at Phoenix this afternoon and 55-mile-per-hour gusts at Pocatello, Idaho and Farmington, New Mexico. Not much change in store for the weather in this area during the next 24 hours. More showers. While along the west coast, ocean breezes will keep temperatures on the cool side. Oh, hi, Bill. Do you have something there? Just something to hold everybody till next weekend, Bob. Midnight in Paris. Their time. Temperature 52, partly cloudy. This is Bill McMurray, now back to Monitor in Radio Central, New York. And Bill and Bob, will you please turn off those showers? They're ruining my garden down in Silver Spring. Hmm. Back in New York again, but just long enough to spin you out to California, Monitor takes you now to Walter McGraw and San Quentin Prison. It's recreation hour at San Quentin. We're back in the North Block, where we began this whole series of programs this morning. It's almost uh, sundown. The men are milling around. Some of them are practicing on instruments. Some are typing. Uh, some are playing checkers. Some are playing chess. But as for most of them, what are they doing? Well, what are you doing? That's right. Listening to monitor. Gentlemen, can you hear me? If uh, Mr. Nielsen of the rating people is listening, mark down 757 listeners to monitor at the North Cell Block of San Quentin. With me is Warden Harley Teets. Tell me, Warden, is radio important to these men? We think it's especially important. <clears throat> it's an escape, it's recreation, it's education. They need it. This is the easiest escape from San Quentin. I hope so. Uh... Do they have any favorite programs? Yes, uh, there are a number of, <coughs> number of favorite programs, but uh, be probably because so many of our men are from the Los Angeles area, one of the favorite programs is Dragnet. It is known locally as This Is Your Life. <laughs> uh, Warden, will you excuse me just one moment? Uh, you can hear the reaction to everything we say in the block. The men are listening. Uh, if you excuse me one moment, Warden, I'm going over and talk to a man we talked to earlier today. If you'll recall, we talked to a young man who's going to 
hit the bricks tomorrow. He's going to be out on parole. Tell me, this is your last night at San Quentin. How's it feel? Pretty nervous and hopeful. Kind of scared. You say nervous. Nervous about what? Well, it's been a long time since I've been out there. How long? Four years. It'll be all new to me. Expect a lot of changes? I hope so. You hope so? What way? For you? For me, yes. Better chance out there. How, uh, how many terms have you served? Two. That's your second. You didn't make it before. What makes you think you'll make it at this time? Well, now I have a trade as automobile mechanic. I have more confidence in myself. Why do you think you didn't make it before? Well, no trade. I had uh, just skipping from job to job. Just more or less uh, couldn't find my place. Have a family? Yes, I have a wife and two children. Are they going to be waiting for you? Yes, sir. Think that'll help? Very much. Anything you'd like to say? No, that about covers it all. Well, on behalf of a lot of people who are listening, wish you all the luck in the world, and I hope that a lot of people listening will understand the problem of the old man a little more after today. Thanks a lot, and good luck. Back to Warden Teats. Tell me, Warden, how long have you been in this prison business? I've been 19 years in prison service. And if you had just one thing to say to the public, what would it be? I believe I'd like to say this, Mr. McGraw, that I sincerely believe that we must apply the corrective measures that we do in the California prisons, but I also believe that signs of aggressive and antisocial conduct, which are so much a part of criminal behavior, can and should be detected much earlier, probably in the school systems. If persons were referred early enough for corrective treatment, I'm convinced that they could be made into useful citizens rather than into criminals. In other words, you feel the schools should be doing the job earlier before the crime happens that you're trying to do now. I think that was that is what we must eventually come to. Well, as I say, another night is settling down over San Quentin. Another day has been served by the men here. For the men up in condemned row, it means that they have one less day to go. We hope that you've had some understanding of prison life. In a few minutes, the lights will be out. And that will be another day at San Quentin. In future Monitor reports, we'll show you other types of prisons around the nation. You'll hear what it's like to be in a mental hospital, in a prison camp, in a reform school, just as it happens. On behalf of NBC, I'd like to thank Warden Harley Teets and Director Richard McGee for cooperating in this report. Personally, I'd like to... Uh, Thank Leon Fry, John Craven, and Ed Arno for helping out tremendously. Now, until our next report on behalf of Peg and myself, good night and thank you. This has been Walter McGraw reporting for Monitor in San Quentin. Thank you, Walter McGraw, for bringing to monitor your on-the-spot reports from behind the walls at San Quentin. And now, free men are flying the Atlantic on our TWA plane. It's a far way across at this point. We don't know exact exactly where, but we're in touch. Come in, J Jim Cahill, and tell us where you are and how goes the flight. This is TWA Flight 860, still flying at 300 miles an hour, 
17,000 feet out over the Atlantic, almost seven hours from New York. We are 1,150 miles from the Irish coast, and 2,150 miles are behind us. It's really a thrill watching the crew members going about their jobs. Captain Paul Grade is back at the controls, having taken over for release pilot Jerry Boxberger. Uh, behind them are radio operator Henry Cornell and flight engineer Walter Davis. Navigator John Nunley is steering us to Shannon by celestial navigation and pressure patterns. Each of these men is top for his job, and each plays a vital part in this minor miracle which is a flight to London through the dark night. It's men like these who have made it possible for TWA this year to mark 30 years in air, air transport. We return you now to Radio Central. Thank you, Jim Cahill. Two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic on Monitor's Flight across the ocean. Well, Jim Cahill is heading for Ireland. Monitor is heading for home. We're moving into the home stretch. Time to pause for some talk about music, the international language. Here's a song Jim may hear over here. Monitor goes now to Hamburg, Germany for such an ach wunderbar hit played by the Dry Jewels. Fährst du manchmal mit der Eisenbahn? Begegnet dir vielleicht auch mal der alte Jan? Denn es geht ja gar nicht ohne ihn auf der Strecke zwischen Buxtehude und Berlin. Then there was the contest. I guess you couldn't call it a sporting event. The contest involving three NBC regulars, Graham McNamee, Milton Cross, and someone who shall or certainly should be nameless, a speed-talking contest. Graham and Milton had done their bit, and then the final contestant read from Alice in Wonderland. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. It did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was out because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because you thought the sun had gotten a visit to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him. She had to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You couldn't see a cloud recording the cloud was in the sky, and the birds flying overhead. There weren't a place to fly. The wall wasn't the common to the wall. This were only clear the way they said it would be grand. The time has come, the wall was said to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and ceiling wax, of cabbages and kings, and so either sea is boiling hot and where the pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried before we have a chat, and some of us are out of bed, and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the commoners. They thanked them much for that. A loaf of bread, the wall was said, is about the chief of need. Pepper and vinegar besides a very good meal. We had to rule, we had to rule Graham McNamee out because he skipped a whole page. Yeah. Milton Cross, Milton Cross to 364, and uh, Ben Grouse up around 437. So, ladies and gentlemen, the winner and champion of these premises, Ben Grouse. Uh, uh, say a few words to the folks back home, Ben. Hello, Mom. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Well, it's plain the imprint of Max Bear was still in the tip of my tongue when that event took place. Back again at Radio Central after Ox such a ride across Germany aboard the Archison Topeka and the Santa Fe. This is Monitor, doing things, going places. Take one. Now, in case the baseball teams you follow are in the minors rather than the majors, this roundup of scores is dedicated to you. Most of these are second games of doubleheaders 
Pacific Coast League, San Francisco 6, Oakland 2, Seattle 3, San Diego 2, Hollywood 5, Los Angeles 4, Southern Association, Memphis 3, Mobile 2, New Orleans 8, Little Rock 6, Texas League, Beaumont 5, Oklahoma City 4, International League, Havana 4, Richmond 3, Syracuse 8, Montreal, Montreal 7, Buffalo 2, Columbus 1, Rochester 8, Toronto 0. Monitor now in its eighth hour and much still to come. Music from Hollywood. But right now, the man who may droodle a household term, Roger Price, who has some sound advice. You know, today we're living in an age of tension and confusion. I am anyway. And I think everybody is because people all over are looking for answers and they're not finding them. And they're rebelling. This problem is caused by people keeping their eye on the ball. Now, you take my second cousin, Clara. Five years ago, Clara was as shy and modest a girl as you could hope to see, but she got disillusioned, and she began to defy conventions. Remember the last time I saw Clara, she was wearing a shockingly daring dress. The hemline of the dress was over 19 inches from the floor. This may not sound so daring unless you know that Clara was only 24 inches tall. Now, Clara's problem was caused by the fact that she always kept her eye on the ball, so we must all learn to keep her eye off the ball. Make that a rule. Now, I've worked out some little devices here that'll assist you in keeping your eye off the ball and making your mind a complete blank. They're what I call sound droodles. For instance, uh, here's one now. See if you can figure out what it is. Ready? Mm. 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 Now, that, of course, if you haven't figured it out already, was a horse doing the mambo. Isn't that cute? Pretty obvious, too, wasn't it? But now, let's get into a little more complicated one. Uh, your mind a blank? Good. Okay. Now, that one's called a nearsighted bee who sat down on a balloon. Sort of sad, isn't it? Takes quite a few before the mind becomes a complete blank. Now, try to figure this one out. It's pretty tricky. <laughs> that one's called an elephant cracking his knuckles. Now, here's one that involves human beings, which should uh, make it a little easier to figure out. And this, this particular one, I'll play the part of the human being, okay? Ouch, 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 ouch. That's called a nudist walking through a briar patch. Sort of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Now, here's another sound droodle involving a famous figure in show business. Are all our minds blank? Are we keeping our eye off the ball? Good. Here's the sound droodle. That one is called Fred Astaire tap dancing in the bathtub. There's no reason at all why Fred shouldn't tap dance in the bathtub. That's where a lot of us practice their singing. But so much for sound droodles for now. If you want to send me in any, I'll give you $5 for any one I use. But in the meantime, remember, keep your eye off the ball. Good luck. Roger Price. <laughs> Thank you. From the slightly out of this world Mr. Price to the utterly out of this world music of Les Brown. The most famous music hall in the world is London's Palladium and Hollywood's Palladium is probably this country's most famous dance place. To the Palladium in Hollywood and the monitor music of Les Brown. There you have it, Ben. 
Ben Grower, there you have the music of Les Brown. Famous theme song, Leapfrog, again brings us to the Dining and Dancing Center of the West, the Hollywood Palladium, on Sunset Boulevard in fabulous Hollywood, Cinematown, USA. Right now, I happen to be on the stage, or just off the stage, rather, and Les is up on stage directing his very fine orchestra. So I can't get to him to talk to him, but we certainly do want to describe our scene here tonight. Hey, Jimmy. Hi, Ben. Can you hear me? You bet I can. How are you, boy? If you can't get to talk to Les for a minute, talk to me for ten seconds, I'd, will you? I'd for be old very time's happy sake. To. Remember when you we bet. started the old uh, announcer's room at 7-Eleven 25 years ago? You're so right, Ben. That was in the days of radio. Yes, sir. And it still is the day of radio. Right. Go ahead, so, uh, Jimmy. Thank you, Ben. Thanks very much. And now, ladies and gentlemen, may I present the music of Les Brown at his famous orchestra, his band of renown, as a matter of fact. And the tune they're going to play for you is I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm. Perhaps radio wasn't dead after all. How could it be with Teddy Thurman, a.k.a. Miss Monitor, finally making an appearance? And the advertisers came too. Monitor had $1.4 million in advance billings. In Kansas City, it's 59 degrees and cloudy. Los Angeles, 64 and fair. New York, 69, rain. Boston, 64, cloudy. Washington, 73, partly cloudy. Cleveland, 61, showers. since the end of World War II, the U.S. population had risen from 140 million to 165 million. By 1968, it would crack 200 million. Those of the boomer generation might have grown up watching TV, but they also grew up blasting car radios and listening to transistors. The mid-century U.S. was learning to come to terms with itself on the world stage. For every necessary civil rights march, there was the equally uplifting moon landing. For every horrifying assassination, there was the equally astounding Beatlemania. It was once thought that radio would kill the newspaper, that talking films would kill the stage play, and that TV would kill radio. As of 2021, none of those predictions have come true. And like in 1955, we're today still learning to come to terms with ourselves. Pat Weaver understood that progress wasn't only necessary, it was inevitable. With Monitor, he was attempting to roll with the punches and figure out a new path towards a better communicative and financial day. Critics praised this debut. The New York Times reviewer Jack Gould said that at long last, network radio was going to receive a shot in the arm. Time Magazine called Monitor a natural rover built for speed. 
Or you have a little Hollywood music, Ben. Fine, how about a touch more? Okay, here's a little bit of theme again. Just to punctuate the fact that this is the music of Les Brown, the famous orchestra, playing for our audience on monitor from coast to coast from the Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, California. And Ben, I can remember those days that you were just talking about, too. Some great bands have been on NBC through the years and still are. You're not you thinking remember, of Coon uh, Saunders, are you? What's that? Coon Sanders? Yes, sir, Coon Sanders. I was really thinking of B.A. Rolfe at the Pally Door. Boy, you boys go back, years ago. don't you? You remember those too, don't you? Indeed I do. That's when we didn't use mics, just opened the windows. Thanks. Going to have to say so long, Jimmy, and to Les Brown as band of renown in Hollywood. Music broadcast through the courtesy of the American Federation of Musicians, James C. Petrillo, president. In Detroit, negotiations to avert a General Motors strike continue. For an on-the-spot report, it's monitor to WWJ Detroit and Carl Cedarberg. There are only four minutes to go before the GM strike deadline. In the East, it is only four minutes before the midnight hour. We've learned from union sources that a strike in the East seems possible. However, we understand that not many plants in the East have midnight shifts, so an agreement announced during the night can still avert a general strike. To give you some idea of how hard company and union negotiators are working, UAW President Walter Ruther has had only two hours sleep in the last 29 hours. GM's Labor Relations Director Louis Seaton has had but one hour's sleep in that 29-hour period. We have learned the company and union are in agreement on the principle of unemployment pay, but a final contract awaits the settling of a few local area plant problems, and the negotiators are working against time to settle those problems. This is Carl Cedarberg. Now back to Monitor in Radio Central, New York. So you opened 7-Eleven Fifth Avenue 25 <laughs> years ago, Ben, huh? You know, I learned a lot from Monitor today. Well, you know, Walter, it's, it's like a newspaper at your door all day long. Uh, I will never replace the newspaper, though. Are you sure? Yep. Can't swat flies with the radio. <laughs> <laughs> The clock keeps on moving, drawing closer now to the midnight hour here at Radio Central in New York. For the past eight hours, this has been the premiere of Monitor, your ear to the world and all of its happenings. We have... Obviously, that was one final sound our engineer had left over. I don't know what it is or where in the past eight hours you were supposed to have heard it, but we wouldn't want you to think that we had held anything back. Here at Radio Central, we've done our best to monitor the world for you as you comb the sand and salt out of your hair on a Carolina beach, as you made your way back into Chicago, bumper to bumper down to old Highway 12, or as you rocketed your way by cracked train from Tulsa to Kansas City for that important Monday morning appointment. Wherever you've spent this lovely spring weekend, Monitor, direct and transcribed, has been your Sunday companion this June 12, 1955. We hope that you'll be with us next weekend when Monitor will be your companion for a full 40 hours doing things and going places. Next weekend, we monitor the world by taking you to San Francisco for the National Open Golf Tournament, to Fort Bragg, North Carolina for the thrills of a mass parachute jump, to the birthplace of the United Nations for the UN's 10th birthday party, we take you around the world for a look-in on June weddings around the world. There'll be these features and dozens more next weekend for 40 hours, 
starting on Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And now, this is Ben Grower. Walter Cairden. Morgan Beatty. And Miss Monitor. All of us saying good night. Good night. This is Monitor, NBC's new radio service. I think what I'm really ending up here on is that we've done uh, a lot of thinking about this. It is, of course, you can see some of its earlier attempts at this type of thing, both in our television projects and in some of the radio shows and radio commercial patterns. But we think here we've gone beyond that, that we've really started over again and said, let's say that television is 100% of all homes, that we have 100% saturation and we're getting a second set in the homes. Then what? Because that's only a few years away. And our answer is a series of program material vignettes of the type you've been hearing about from us today and a series of advertising patterns that the more we get into it, the more excited we get. And the more excited we get, the more we want all of you fellows to get excited too. So we're going to uh, make our run on Monitor starting June 12th, and you will get all the detail about it very shortly, and we hope that you will be with it and will do those necessary things both on your own personal schedules and also in your own brains where uh, it conflicts with some of the things that you have always been used to and have found good that you will still say let's go ahead and let's try to change and see if we can make this thing go and with those words and leaving out an emotional closing since it's Friday and we all want to get away except that I'm not going to I will close and hope that you will all be with us. We're counting on you. On June 13th, a new agreement was reached between General Motors and the United Automobile Workers. The contract covered more than 375,000 employees. That same day in the Soviet Union, the Mir mine was discovered. It was the USSR's first diamond mine. On June 16th, there was an attempted Argentine coup against President Juan Perón. Thirty Navy and Air Force aircrafts bombed the civilian crowd at the Plaza de Mayo. The attack targeted the Casa Rosada, Argentina's official government building. At the time, the number of known victims was 308. Several more victims couldn't be identified. Sources have later disputed that total. With the Catholic Church supporting the coup, angry crowds burned eight churches, two basilicas, and the church office in revenge. The police and fire service did not intervene. On June 18th, the Disneyland Railroad made its first run in anticipation for the park's opening the next month. And that morning at 8.15 a.m. New York time, Monitor took to the air with its first scheduled 40-hour broadcast. 
During the next 45 minutes, Monitor will go to New York's Bronx Zoo for a chat with the lion lady. Oh, hold it, hold it, Frank. Good morning. Good morning, Al. Frank, I just got a bulletin here. We're not going to talk to the lion lady. We're going to have breakfast with the elephants. Well, I hope it's a good breakfast. We'll get the lion lady later. Elephants never forget. (laughs) Where else are we going? We go to Hollywood for news of the stars, to the National Weather Bureau in Washington for a late report on what we can expect in the way of weather all around the country this weekend. In less than two hours, Bob and Ray, big things are in store. And speaking of big things in store, what's this I hear about a date we've got with Russia this morning? Well, at approximately 9.45, Al, that's New York time, we'll be talking to our NBC correspondent, Jack Begon, in Moscow. It's the first time in, I think, about seven years that we have been able to talk to one of our own, one of our very own correspondents in the Russian capital. You see, Monitor gets everywhere, doesn't it? Indeed it does. And just like that, Monitor was off and running. What about Pat Weaver? Weaver was soon pushed out of NBC's presidency by David Sarnoff and installed as chairman of the board. Sarnoff promoted his son Robert to president. Weaver resigned on September 7, 1956, He had a dispute with Sarnoff over the fate of several of Weaver's people in the company. He was only 48. Over the next 40 years, he would be involved in a variety of media projects. His daughter Sigourney is a three-time Oscar-nominated actress. Weaver passed away in Santa Barbara in 2002. However, Before Weaver resigned from NBC, he was at the helm for the subject of our next episode of Breaking Walls. It dealt with, perhaps, the one place Weaver couldn't go. Into the future. Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one... Next time on Breaking Walls, we blast off to infinity and beyond with a show that launched on Sunday evenings in early 1955. It was temporarily suspended for the debut of Monitor. However, it was brought back on Thursdays in July and would go on to become one of the most critically acclaimed and far-reaching science fiction shows in history. The show, X-1. reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, 
Monitor Take Two by Dennis Hart. Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. Articles from Broadcasting Telecasting Magazine. Monthly Labor Review. The New York Daily News. The New York Times. Newsweek. Printers Inc. and Variety. As well as the websites. Accordions.com for their interview with Art Van Dam. Dennis Hart's MonitorBeacon.net. And TipsOnTables.com. On the interview front, Pat Weaver was interviewed for Fred Allen's May 29, 1956 biography in Sound. Ben Grauer was interviewed for NBC's 50th anniversary and Westinghouse's 50th anniversary. Dave Garraway and Willard Waterman spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. And Jim Jordan was with Dick Pertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear this full interview at goldenage-wtic.org. Selected music featured in today's episode was Shangri-La by the new Spike Jones Band, Maris's Farewell by George Winston, and Moon Moods by Les Baxter and his orchestra. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 in New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A massive thank you to Gordon Skeen and Dennis Hart for their contributions to this episode. Gordon maintains a tremendous sound collection. You can visit his site at pastdaily.com. Dennis Hart is the preeminent monitor researcher. If this subject interests you, pick up Monitor Take Two or go to monitorbeacon.net. Breaking Walls episode 117 will focus on perhaps the greatest science fiction show in radio history. It was the first show I ever listened to and holds a special place in my heart. We'll stay with NBC in 1955 for the backstory, interviews about, and show episodes on X-1. This episode will be available beginning July 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime... Give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until July 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 116, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.